Get a Crawford, the runner at first. Line down the left field line toward the corner. A fair ball, and the Red Sox win it. And welcome to the Sportscasters episode number 35. It is August 9th, 2011. Here in very fall-like Buffalo, New York today. It's rainy, overcast, kind of a cooler day here in Buffalo. It's been the last few weeks, but I'll take it. My name is Steve Bennett, here with my co-host Don Ross. How are you doing today, Don? Wonderful. We are only about, what, four or five days away now from having some NFL games, albeit preseason, but I don't know, have you ever been as interested in the preseason as maybe you may or may not be this year? I feel like there's a little extra juice, at least for the first week. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Just, I guess, the excitement over just football in general. Because I think we tricked ourselves into thinking we were missing a lot more than we were actually missing during the lockout. Right, the lockout may have actually been a good thing for that reason, because I used to get amped up for fantasy football and just football in general months in advance, and now... It was kind of just questions about whether there'd even be football. So, so you you're kind think of about that tempering stuff. your, your right. excitement, right? And now it just seems like everything all at once is just blowing up. But it's awesome. So, yeah, it's great. It's, it's compact, but it's nice that way. So here's what we got today, episode 35 of the Sportscasters. We have an in- interview with DJ Gallo. DJ Gallo is a guy that we've been chasing for quite a while on the podcast. Really looking forward to talking to DJ Gallo. Obviously from sportspickle.com and also ESPN page two. We also have an interview with Matt Bowen from the National Football Post. He's a former NFL player turned journalist. He writes for the Chicago Times and also writes for the National Football Post. He has a master's degree in journalism from DePaul in Chicago. He's a former Buffalo Bill, Washington Redskin, played for the St. Louis Rams in the days of the greatest show on turf. And also we have an interview with Jay Clemens, who used to be an editor and fantasy writer at Sports Illustrated. He is now with the National Football Post as well, and he's a fantasy guy there. And it's a really, I recorded it a bit ago, it's a really interesting fantasy discussion. And I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. So we have DJ Gell, Matt Bowen, Jay Clemens on the show today. Also, Don and I will do five on fantasy. We'll have a book club update, and we'll get it all started right now with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. One of the strangest baseball plays... uh, that maybe I've ever seen happened recently. Brendan Ryan, shortstop for the Seattle Mariners, hit what seemed to be a uh, harmless infield single, and then all hell broke loose, kind of. So good. And infield hit for Ryan. Nice play by Sogard to get to that ball. The Ryan's aboard with a base hit. And he gets now it a goes second. to second. That's Remember, up. he tried to do that again. He's going to get to third. third. There's nobody at third. And Brendan Ryan with a 
colossal play. Okay, that's a very visual clip, but uh, you can hear uh, everyone seems to be kind of, okay, he hit a single, whatever. He even, I think, brushed himself off for a second at first base. Then he noticed the second baseman had come to cover or to back up the, the first baseman. And the shortstop didn't adjust. And the adjust. shortstop didn't adjust, so there was no one at second. So he ran to second uh, without a throw. And then the third baseman had run to cover second, got about halfway there, and he's like, well, if I can beat this guy. So he runs to third with right. no one on third. He even says later on in the article that he would have tried for home because the catcher was backing was backing somebody up too. Just lots of people out of position. Uh, so he plays for the Rays, right? He plays for the Mariners. The Mariners. Okay, who are they playing? They were playing Oakland. Oakland. Now, I can't believe this doesn't happen more in a 162-game season. But basically what happened is Oakland completely fell asleep on the play. Right. They just kind of accepted the fact that it was just going to be a lazy infield single. And everyone was standing around. And the guy took advantage of it. Heads up play. Good hustle. And I laugh at how it's scored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the official scoring is a... Single with the runner advancing to third on a fielder's choice. And the fielder's choice was to... Do nothing, Do nothing. Because there was nobody else on base. It's not like they threw in another direction or anything. The fielder's choice was to hold the ball at first base and not even attempt to throw it anywhere. And you got to love it. This guy plays for the Mariners. The Mariners have been out of it <laughs> for how long? <laughs> you know, but it's great to see he's still hustling, still cares. Yeah, absolutely. So, Saturday night, my first thing... The NFL had their annual Hall of Fame induction ceremony. And things like that can be very boring from time to time. But I actually watched most of the ceremony, and it was awesome. And it, it goes to show you how cool things like that can be when you have the right people. You know, unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> what is this, three out of four weeks with the siren? Last, Where are we? Last week the siren came by too, but we had uh, stopped recording by that point. But yeah, every week... A little behind the scenes is some siren goes by right outside our window. I feel like we're in Baghdad recording this. <laughs> Unbelievable. Anyway, Deion Sanders, Shannon Sharp, Marshall Falk, Ed Sable, and a few other guys, Richard Dent, and two other inductees from the Veterans Committee, all were inducted into the Hall of Fame. Congratulations to them. And there were some great speeches. Shannon Sharp was awesome. Marshall Falk was cool. But I thought Deion Sanders was the best. We have a little clip from Deion. I will leave you with this. Many of my naysayers said, you know, Prime didn't tackle. I said, well, show me some film where he didn't or where he hurt his team. But I want to respond to that publicly because that affects me it bothers me it's insinuating that I'm soft and I got kids since 1989 I've tackled every bill my mama has ever given me so <laughs> A big part of Dion's speech was him and his relationship with his mama. A big part of Sterling Sh or Shannon Sharp's speech was about his relationship with his brother Sterling and his grandmother. And there was a lot of emotion, a lot of energy, some really funny stuff. And I think NFL.com has the speeches. 
posted there. It was a good time. Really cool. Congratulations to the Hall of Famers. And one interesting thing, Don, next year, there isn't really that many huge players. I think Will Shields, the guard from Kansas City, is the biggest name coming in. So there's going to be a chance maybe for some of the wide receivers that have been Andre Reed, Andre Reed, Chris, Chris Carter. Carter. Do you think these guys get in? Do you think there's a chance for any of these wide receivers? I think Chris Carter maybe is the best chance. I was having this talk with family. Uh, they better because if players like Randy Moss really stay retired and stuff, the window for guys like Andre Reed and Chris Carter is going to be small because there's players that are better than them that are going to start retiring. And I said the problem with Andre Reed and Chris Carter and wide receivers in general is guys like Reed and Carter compiled a lot of great stats. They had great careers, but they were never even the best at their position when they played. Right. So it's hard to make an overly compelling argument for them being just these players that were... Like, is Heinz Ward going to be a Hall of Famer someday? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, it's incredible that James Lofton is a Hall of Famer and Andre Reid isn't. But then you have to remember... You know, because living in Buffalo and growing up, we always thought of Andre Reid. But Lofton was at the end of his career, and right. he had already built up his Hall of Fame career Seattle. in Green Bay. Or Green Bay, yeah. Ahead of time, so you really can't think of it that way. But yeah, I think next year is a huge year for the wide receivers that have not made it. I think Tim Brown maybe is another one right, that's right. eligible that hasn't made it. Next year might be a big year because there isn't a lot of players coming in this next season to be eligible but after that, it could get could get really crowded. My next thing this week uh, is kind of a condolences to you and uh, Zach. You oh, very sad. Past Zach, you score now sooner. Zach, OU's Oklahoma's all-time winningest quarterback, Jimmy Harris, died at seventy-six today. Uh, he led Oklahoma during the majority of their forty-seven game win streak in the fifties. Died at seventy-six years old. Uh, he was called up to replace an injured Gene Kalami prior to the Sooners game against TCU. Yep. And so an all-time great Sooner uh, passes today, and I, I know that's near and dear to you and Zach, you score, and someone else I'm leaving out that we've had on the podcast, a big OU guy. Yeah, a tough time for the Sooners because not only did the all-time winning quarterback die today, but also today the news came out that linebacker and the leading tackler for the last three years on the team, Travis Lewis, has an injury in his foot and is going to miss eight weeks. And it's frustrating because OU is projected to do some really big things this year, preseason number Number one one, or two, depending on where you look. And the last time this was the case, right around now in the season, we found out that Jermaine Gresham, an All-American wasn't going to be able to play. Then Sam Bradford got injured two or in the first game first of the game? season yeah. and then it got in the Texas game. And there's another big injury that I'm leaving out. But that was the – and then the next season, you know, we had three players picked in the top five that had barely played at all the year right, before right. for Oklahoma. And it just seems like the bad luck is following. It's int- one more interesting thing about Oklahoma because you brought it up right now. So Saturday night – on, I was messaging back and forth with Ryan Broyles okay. of the one, another star on the Oklahoma team. I asked him if he'd be interesting to come on the show, and he said absolutely he'd love to come on, but he said I had to ask Kenneth Mossman from the campus. So I wrote a really long email to Ken 
introduced myself, asked him if we could have Ryan on, and this is his response. Steve, thank you for your inquiry, but due to the media load our players face, Coach Stoops has prohibited us from doing web-only programs. I am sorry we cannot help. Kenny. So I wrote back to him. And I, <laughs> I did see this. I wrote back to him and I complained that he was being a websist. You know, kind of like a racist, but right, for the right. internet. And uh, I complained a little bit about the policy. I said that it was short-sighted. And he emailed me back a couple times. And basically, he just said that he doesn't expect... This is another quote from him. He says, I don't expect you to understand, nor I expect you to see this from our viewpoint. Fact is, we got precious little time to meet a significant media demand. And his point was, his larger point was that he has trouble getting players to agree to interviews because they do so many and they're so much the same and they're boring for them. Well, then why would you eliminate one whole segment of the media? Like... (laughs) Okay, if you're only going to do TV interviews, well, TV, TV interviews are going to tend to be the same. So why not mix it up and have a, a podcast here, a TV show here, a radio show here? I just think it's ridiculous. I'm frustrated. I'm disappointed we're not going to ha- have Ryan Burrells on, but R- Ryan promised to come on after the season uh, and when he is a pro. So we'll look forward to talking to Ryan then. And, uh, well, screw you, OU. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right, my number two thing. Don, we found someone who might hate Tiger Woods more than me, and that's Stevie Williams, and we have a little clip. I'll tell you, Stevie, that's, uh, I'm, you know, somebody has won seven times here. I think you've got eight flags now, is that right? Hey, I've got to tell you, David, I've been a caddy for 33 years, and um, that's the best week of my life, and I'm not joking. I'm never, ever going to remember that, forget that week. The people here this week have been absolutely unbelievable, and all the support from the people back in New Zealand, uh, including my family, uh, that's... So this guy has won this tournament seven times with Tiger Woods. He's won the U.S. Open. He's won the Masters with Tiger Woods. He's won every tournament you can think of. I don't remember how many majors it was that he won with Tiger Woods, but most of the 14. He saw Tiger Woods win the U.S. Open on one leg. Yeah. But his greatest victory of all time is a meaningless tournament in Ohio the with WGC, Adam Scott. The WGC Bridgestone International. So obviously there's a lot of bitter feelings. Now the story basically is, is that Stevie Williams was fired by Tiger Woods. And he's really pissed off about it because he feels like he was fired over the phone. While Tiger Woods camp countered and said no, he was fired in person. Stevie Williams admits that they had a face-to-face visit, but it was after he had been fired to deal with some kind of other issues that needed to be sorted out because he was fired. He says basically he was fired on the phone, and then they met up later to sort out some of the details. So Stevie Williams, and it brought up a big, a big kind of interesting thing. So Adam Scott won the tournament. He's not the story. No. The winner. Tiger Woods was kind of the story, the biggest golfer in the world, but not really. It was more about a caddy this week. And caddies are usually seen but not heard. Right. You know, so there's been a bit of big debate. Should caddies be allowed to talk to the media? Was Steve Williams wrong? Steve Williams actually made more money than Tiger Woods this yeah, week. Yeah, I heard that. That's Tiger funny. Woods made $58,000 for where he finished in the tournament. And the winner won about a million dollars. And the caddy usually gets about 10% of that. So that's about $100,000. I can't think of an I don't know if you can call Stevie Williams an athlete, but I can't I can't think of someone in the athletic field that has loved being scorned more than he has. He loves telling people about 
uh, he, he's making it about himself. You know what I mean? If he right. was really hurt, he would have said his piece and then faded away and been the bigger person or whatever. But now he's doing interviews with uh, CBS Sports you know, and after and Adam some Scott's people win. did blame CBS for that, kind of sticking the mic in his face. Right. And there's some, you know, some some of that can't be true, but you know, like you said, Steve Williams made this about himself. Adam Scott hadn't won on the tour in a long time. I'm sure it was a huge week for for Adam Scott. We barely hear I haven't heard of him say a word to I be haven't honest. Heard any clips from you him. You know, I don't know what he had to say. I'm sure they're out there if we watch the Golf Channel as religiously as my brother Anthony does or <laughs> Zach does, we might have heard it. But wow, wow! Yeah, congrats, Stevie Williams, on your uh, eighth victory at that tournament. At that tournament, right? Uh, my last thing today: the council, uh, the city council in L.A., agrees unanimously, twelve to zero, to uh, build a stadium. A non-binding agreement with developer Anschutz Entertainment Group to build a $1.2 billion NFL stadium, a new city convention hall, and two parking structures in, on municipal land won the backing today in Los Angeles City Council. So it sounds like sooner than later there will be football in And we knew, LA. This, we knew this was right. coming. It looks like it will be completed by the 2016 season. So all I have to say is please don't take the bills. Uh I offer you the Jacksonville Jaguars, <laughs> who have to put a tarp over their stadium because people don't care. Did what? you see that the Jacksonville Arena team was in the semifinals last night? Sold out arena. <laughs> like the arena was rocking. So I think I put something on Twitter like, well, okay, so the arena can sell out, but the stadium needs tarps. So they must have about 20,000 football fans there then, right? Right, right. You know, you, they could, the Jaguars could probably play in the arena and sell that out. But you put it in a bigger venue, like a 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 stadium, and they need tarps. I've talked about this before, but I don't understand why Florida tries to force teams in there. I don't know if it's a Florida problem or if it's a league problem. I don't know if it's because there's no income tax down there. But they have, what, three football teams? The Dolphins, the Jags, and Tampa Bay. In, Miami's a terrible sports city. And that's city. all in a college football state. I mean, there's there's probably I – mean, not probably, but – Teams like the Gators draw much better. Florida State draws much better. Yeah, and then there's Miami. There's Central. There's tons of college teams, right. and it's just a bad football state. But you know, it's interesting. You say don't take the Bills. Well, they may as they might take a team from California. Right. Uh, I know the Chargers have trouble with stadiums. Oakland and San Francisco have had trouble with stadiums. They're out there. It seems like the Saints, Saints, and the Vikings might be stable right now. Last I heard, the Vikings were going to get their stadium built. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully it is Jacksonville. It makes sense. Because nobody's going to the nobody games Nobody cares. Anyway. So, right. who, you know, why bother? But You have one friend, and I think he's the only person I've ever met that's a big Jags fan. Same here. And he, yeah, it's just, a, they're just, they're nothing. Yeah. Nothing. My third thing, Dan Ugla is in the midst of the strangest 29-game hitting streak in Major League Baseball history. <laughs> he's two hit, two games away from setting the Atlanta Braves all-time Record for most consecutive hits. It's 31 by Rico Cardi in 1970. And during this hitting streak, he's hit 12 home runs and he's raised his batting average from 173 to 220. 220. Yep. 220. 
Unbelievable. Slightly better than one out of every five times he goes up to the plate. I guess you have to give the Braves credit for sticking with him. Yeah. This hitting streak started with the first game after the All-Star break. So so that means the whole first half of the season, he was batting 173, playing second base, going out there every day, struggling. He comes back after the break. He's ripped off 29 straight games now. Yesterday, he beat out an infield single to keep the streak going. And he's raised his batting average 50 points and only up to three or 220. I've never seen anything quite like this. Be interesting to see how far it goes. Be interesting if he can make a run at 56. He's a long way off for that from yep. that yet. That's DiMaggio's record of 56 hits. Uh, but it's a really strange, strange, strange thing. Do you happen to know, ballpark, what his average has been during the hit streak? I mean, that would be interesting. I mean... If he, how bad you said he was batting what? One seventy three when it started. One seventy three when it started. So he's got it up to two twenty, which is just about fifty points. So he's got to be hitting like forty seven points, three eighty something like that now. Yeah, I think I saw in the three seventies. So he's hitting about three seventy. Yeah. Mean, so he is like you said, they stuck with him and it's paying off. It's not like he's going one for five every night and right, just slowly but surely getting his average up there. Yeah, incredible. So. That'll wrap us up for three things today. Again, we have three interviews today, one with DJ Gallo, which is going to be next. Also, Jay Clemens and Matt Bowen, both from the National Football Post. Bowen, we're going to concentrate more on, I don't want to say regular football, but we're going to talk about, yeah, regular football. And with Jay Clemens, we're going to talk about fantasy Fantasy football. football, And DJ Gallo, we're going to talk a little bit about the Pirates and what he does for page two and his work with sportspickle.com. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with DJ Gallo. Our next guest is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and is a graduate of Towson University. He is the creator of the satire website, sportspickle.com, and is a columnist for ESPN.com's Page 2. He also hosts the Page 2 podcast with Mike Philbrook. His first book was published in 2007 and was called The View from the Upper Deck. He is not to be confused with Vincent Gallo. He is not a Spanish DJ, but he does wear mock turtlenecks, a warm sports well, Sportscasters, welcome to the great and talented DJ Gallo. How are you doing today, DJ? Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. That is the biggest upset in Sportscasters history that Towson University had a fight song. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's surprising. Um, I'm not even sure if, if that was a fight song. Uh, Towson's not a real big sports school, so I'd, I didn't really go to a lot of events. <laughs> <laughs> You may have played the fight song. You may not have. I'm I'm not really an expert on that. Well, we will trust we will trust Twitter or YouTube, and believe that that is <laughs> YouTube the, has never steered anyone. Astray. No, no, it has not. Never. Well, welcome to the sportscasters. We've been trying to get you on for a while. We're glad to finally have you. And um, I guess the first question I have for you, because I've been kind of following along with your heartbreak on Twitter. But what the heck happened to the Pirates? I mean, it was the feel-good story of the season. I mean, it it was like two weeks ago, I was talking to Ben Nicholson-Smith from MajorLeagueBaseballTradeRumors.com. We were talking about what the Pirates would do to help them win this division. And ever since the trade deadline, it seems like everything's falling apart. Yeah, it's just uh, incredibly depressing. (laughs) I'm I'm not even like a a Pirates bandwagon jumper. I have... 
um, legitimately been like a, a diehard who has watched just a ton of terrible, terrible baseball for the last 18 years. Um, one of like the worst moments of my childhood was when they lost the 92 NLCS. The Sid which Green play. That's two things that I guess, A, I had a pretty good childhood, if that's one of the worst moments. Um, but also that, you know, I'm, I'm a big Pirates fan. And, uh, you know, so you're watching them all these years, and they've never really even been close, as anyone knows. It's not like they've, you know, one year we're 80 and 82 or something. I mean, they, they've not only not been close to the playoffs, they're not even close to 500 ever. So this year was just incredibly, incredibly exciting. I didn't think, I mean, they're still a few years away, at least in my opinion, from being legit contenders. I didn't think they'd stick around to really even win the NL Central. But uh, it was exciting. They're in contention. They're, they're relevant. And then it just fell completely apart. Even someone who's watched years and years of terrible baseball, I did not expect it to be that bad. Yeah, and it, did you were you to a point where, I know you said you didn't expect them maybe to win the Central, but were you to a point where you were pretty bought in? Like, did they get you? Did they have you there? And and did you start believing, or what? Did you still were you waiting for this to happen? Well, I mean, I, I I thought they would fall off a little bit. I thought I thought 500 was a guarantee at this point, which you know is as they as the team says and as the franchise kind of um, mantra has become under Clint Hurdle, like 500 is not a goal, which I'm totally cool with. It would just be nice to cross that off. So I, I thought that 500 was set. They were seven games over 500. You know, we're into mid-July at, at that point, um, they're going to acquire guys at the deadline to make a legitimate run at it. I thought at least 500 was completely gone. We never have to hear about that again. And then they, they scuffle a little bit in Atlanta and then lose 10 in a row. And then they, I think, I try not to look at the standings in the last few days. But <laughs> they, if they finally won last night. Um, but they are uh, five or six games under 500. So even the playoffs, barring a complete collapse by the Brewers, are pretty much out of... Um, out of out of the realm of possibility, and now even 500. Like, oh, they really got to turn it around to make 500. <laughs> so, so even for this, instantly in one week became the most exciting pirate season in 18 years. To in a way, almost the worst because it was just like getting your heart ripped out. What about the team has you excited about the future, though? Like, obviously McCutcheon seems like right. he'll be the stud and the star of the team. Are there some other things that have you really excited about the future of Pirates baseball? Yeah, definitely. I mean, part of the reason they've been so bad in recent years is because they traded away anyone that they had. But then the new general manager, Neil Huntington, that took over, I think, in uh, 2007, 2008, I, I forget now, but um, he actually has had a legitimate plan that he stuck to. It, it, it looked terrible because they traded away anyone decent for a while just to build up some depth in the farm system. But he continued to do that to try to create a pool of prospects that the cream of the crop would kind of eventually rise. And that's what started to happen a little bit this year. You have guys like McCutcheon and, and Neil Walker, especially um, Alex Presley, who did really well for about a month and a half until he got hurt. Um, Jose Tabata. Pedro Alvarez is supposed to be a good player. He's just awful this year. Um, but they have a lot of players starting to come up and now a ton of depth in the minor league system. So I, I was hoping they would maybe get to 500 this year at the beginning of the year before all the excitement and then uh, crushing collapse happened. <laughs> um, but I still think they're a year or two away when the really all the depth that they have in the minor league system will bubble up and they might have a decent run for a few years. Did you, were you satisfied with what they did do at the trading deadline or did you, were you hoping they would do a little bit more? Or do you think that they kind of showed the right amount of constraint, they didn't mortgage the future, 
and now they're going to give themselves some flexibility in the offseason, which is a better free agent class than last season. And uh, do you think that they're really... It seems like they got a smart GM, and it seems to me like they're really positioning themselves to, you know, finally, maybe next year, you know, will be the year that the Pirates are, like you say, over 500 and competing with Milwaukee and St. Louis for the division. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think they took the right approach, especially looking back, you know, hindsight at this point, it was definitely the right approach that they didn't, you know, get Hunter Pence or Beltron and right. you know, trade a ton of prospects away, which I didn't want them to do in the first place because I think all realistic Pirates fans, unless you're just like a complete, just jumped on the bandwagon out of nowhere and like, woo, you know, let's win the World Series this year, that was not going to happen. So trying to add big star players and then mortgaging the future would have been stupid because there's, like I you know, like we're saying, they're two, three years away from being really good, I think. Um, so they picked up uh, Derek Lee for, like, a, like their third best first baseman below double-A. Um, then they got uh, left fielder for a player to be named later. I mean, they didn't, they didn't give away anything. Right. Um, or in Ryan Ludwig. So I think they went about it the right way. It just, it just sort of fell, <laughs> fell apart at the wrong time. What made the 10-game losing streak even more depressing this is the first time the Pirates acquired anyone at the trade deadline since 1997 when they picked up uh, Schwan Dunstan <laughs> when they were trying to make a run in a, a really, really bad year in the NL Central. Um, so they, you know, everyone's all excited, like, oh, we're actually adding people at the trade deadline, and then they proceed to lose 10 games in a row. Yeah, what, definitely, definitely disappointing. One of the more disappointing, it's, you know, it's same thing in Cleveland. Because the Indians were kind of the AL version of the Pirates, and the Pirates were the NL version of the Indians, and it seems like both teams are kind of falling apart at the same time. Right. Uh, I took a little bit of time out earlier this afternoon, and I listened to a little bit of the ESPN Page 2 podcast, and over the course of the week, I've been reading some stuff on sportspickle.com and checking out some of your columns on ESPN Page 2, and there's so many different things that you do do on a day-to-day basis, and I was just kind of curious... What do you like to do the most? Uh, do you consider yourself a writer? Do you, do you consider yourself a, a sat, you know, someone who is best when he's being funny and writing the satire stuff? Or do you like to do the audio stuff and doing the podcast with Mike? Or, or what kind of makes you the happiest as a, as a, a worker in the uh, sports media? Um, I, I think what I kind of what I got started with was just writing sports satire, um, more of like the Onion style stuff, sports satire. For right. Um, but that you know that I, I've gone away from that a little bit. Um, but I think definitely writing, um, writing definitely, and then you know satire, humor type stuff, be it for page two or for or for sports pickle, um, is what I always like to like to do the best, and just partly because I think that's what I'm the best at. Um, I, I guess I would consider myself a writer, but not like a, you know, I'm not a, I don't think I'm a novelist or some sort of, you know, great cutting edge man of letters or something <laughs> like that. Um, and I'm, and I'm definitely not, um, you know, a, a lot of times people will read something on page two and might not be familiar with page two and are, you know, therefore not familiar with me at all. And they'll get a letter of like, you know, you, sir, are the worst journalist that I've ever, you know, ever come across. <laughs> people just uh, don't get it. Not understanding the point of the article, but right. um, I'm definitely not a journalist at all. Like, I, I don't have journalism training. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a satirist. I, I don't, it's not that I go out of my way to not have journalist ethics. You know, I can't, I can't write something for ESPN that's, you know, libelous or something. Um, but I, I'm not a journalist. I don't, I don't claim to be, and I, 
anyone who is a real journalist, me being associated to them would be, you know, tarnishing their name. So um, the, the podcast is something that they, that Page Two wanted me to do um, to kind of, you know, expand their media empire or whatever. Um, I, I think it's gotten better over the year and a half that we've done it. Um, it's still not, you know, I don't think it's completely in my wheelhouse. I also used to do, um, when ESPN News still did, um, like, our own original programming, I did, like, a weekly uh, appearance on ESPN News television for, like, a year and a half. Um, and that's another thing that I, I think I got better at it as it went along, but it still wasn't, wasn't my complete comfort zone. So I still think always just the humorous, you know, at least intended to be... <laughs> Intended to be humorous writing is what I'm most comfortable with. When you did start the podcast, did having that reoccurring role, like one of the big reasons we were excited to have you on the show is because a lot of our fans are former, Dave, well, still Dave Damashek fans, and right. you used to have that recurring role on Dave's podcast. Did that kind of help you, give you confidence as you went into doing the other podcast, having that reoccurring role on Damashek's show? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, you guys know, of course. That, I mean, Dave's a great, you know, up, up there with the best sportscasters or podcasters, if, if not the best. Right. Um, so, yeah. I mean, that being able to um, have a conversation with someone over the phone that you realize is going to be heard by other people and not not rambling too much or not, you know, it it helps you. Every little bit of practice helps as you go along. Um, you know, the first. When I first kind of my career started, I would get uh, you know like radio appearances and things like that. And probably if I heard the recordings of those now, I would be horrified. <laughs> but um, as you practice and do things you, with anything, you get you get better as you go along. So yeah, that that and the TV stuff that I did definitely helped. I think um, be whatever quality of podcaster I am now. <laughs> you wrote a pretty hilarious uh, a column that out me and my me and my partner down. We're just cracking up before we were kind of. Checking it out, the Tim Tebow versus uh, Kyle Orton tell of the tape, and <laughs> my favorite part was the uh, personal friend for Tebow. You had Jesus Christ, and for uh, Orton, you had Jack Daniel. I got a got a big kick out of that. What was behind the uh, Tebow versus Orton tell of the tape, and is this something that maybe maybe you should just do tell tell of the tape more often? I think. Yeah, um, that was actually with Page Two. They let me pretty much write whatever I want. I mean, not you know, not like the F word and stuff. But I mean, like idea wise, I can I can write whatever I want. Um, that was actually uh, doing something off of Orton and Tebow was um, an idea from um, my my editor to do something off that, and I wasn't sure of the format, so I just thought, hey, you know, tell the tape is easy to do, and that's actually the the first joke that came into my head. A lot of times. Um, if someone gives you, an, I really struggle with when someone gives me an idea like, "Hey, do this idea," because it doesn't come out of my own head. It just doesn't work for me a lot of times. Um, but usually, if I can think of a line or a two or three jokes, everything can kind of fill in from there. Which again, I think proves that I'm not really a a writer, writer or a journalist. I'm, I I more. I mean, if you look at my columns, they're a collection of jokes that somehow I fit other words into, like make a thousand words long. Right. Um, so that was yeah that was someone else's idea, the the topic, and I came up with the tail of tape, and then just you know you, you try to string enough things together to to make it work. So that brings up but yeah that's a you know an old sort of classic format um, and yeah you should definitely do more of it. Like it so yeah it was definitely a hit. Um, but you know it brings up a bigger topic, and that's kind of like where ideas stem from, and 
obviously when you you know you're working for page two and you have an editor and he's giving you ideas where you kind of run the show at sports pickle you can kind of do you have a little bit more freedom to kind of do what you want at sports pickle and is that where kind of you know how do you i guess what i'm trying to ask is you have your page two hat on and then you have your sports pickle hat on how how do you how do you jump from one to the other and how are they different uh yeah that's a good question i mean there there are certain things that are kind of in my my role or I wouldn't say it's a fine job title or whatever but at page two but um like during college football season i do a um college football preview column every week on a thursday um then on monday i do an nfl rap column um and i do the podcast three times a week and then um during the off season i still do an off season football column once a week and then some other things to fill in with the with the podcast so there are certain certain things that with a, a page like page two or a site that page two that comes from sort of a you know obviously ESPN a journalistic background, it still has typical formats in a lot of ways. Like you'll see more straight uh, a column which I wouldn't write for Sports Pickle. There's not like an 800 word or 1200 word columns really on Sports Pickle. They're more shorter, um, more visual things or more um, something like the Tebow Orton thing was something that could have appeared on Sports Pickle. But I think a lot of them are, um, page two stuff tends to be a little longer form, um, and stuff for Sports Pickle is a little shorter and maybe more more uh, visual. Interesting. So you say, I was listening to the podcast today, and one of the things you guys talked about a little bit was the kind of bizarre circumstance that involves Stevie Williams and Tiger Woods and Adam Scott this weekend. And uh, we talked about it a little bit on our show, too, off the top today. And what, what was your overall, like, just impression of the whole thing? Like, what sticks out to you and what kind of made you laugh and what kind of made you roll your eyes? And, you know, <laughs> it's just such a strange, strange thing. Like, where do you stand on everything? Yeah, it, it's really, <laughs> it's just pathetic, I mean, to watch this guy who, I'm not, I'm not just a sports fan who's like, you know, I'm into football, baseball, and, you know, pretends to know about golf. Like, I legitimately play golf. I have somewhat of a golf background, and I can say completely confidently that caddies do absolutely nothing. You can talk to, you know, you'll talk to a golf guy or someone who's spent their whole life in a country club or something, and they'll pretend that, oh, no, he's very important as far as, uh, you know, getting the wind direction and, and uh, the, the yardage book, and all. it's all complete crap. Like, caddies do, do absolutely nothing. They, are, they just carry the guy's clubs around. And yes, there are certain things that they help with, but the golfer does 99.5% of it and could do all of the other things that the caddy does if, you know, if he had to. So <laughs> this guy to pretend that he had some great role in Tiger Woods' career is just, to me, completely absurd. If, if Tiger Woods let me caddy for him for 13 years or whatever it was, and I made millions of dollars just walking around holding this guy's clubs, and if he walked in and fired me, even if you know, it had bad two years or whatever, I would still be like, I understand. Thank you so much for letting me make millions of dollars and become famous by carrying your crap around. <laughs> and, <he laughs> and this guy's like all petty and won't let it go and is like going on these long diatribes after the, the Bridgestone tournament. It's, so <laughs> it's hilarious and just the guy is so, so pathetic. I think yeah. I've heard more from Please. Steve Williams this past week than I've heard from every other caddy in the history of golf ever. I know, it's just. It's, it's a, I mean, what other what other caddies can you name? I follow golf. I can name Steve Williams, 
I can name Fluff. Only the last Tiger Woods one. Yeah, you right. can be Tiger Woods caddy. Right. And then there's uh, there's Bagger Vance, who's in a movie. <laughs> and the homeless guy from Happy Gilmore. Right. That's right. And, and the uh, and the the, well, the guy, the kid in Caddyshack. Right. So yeah. This guy's only famous and only wealthy because of Tiger Woods. Yet he just decides to rip him. And I'm sure. I mean, Tiger Woods seems. Uh, more than two years ago, his reputation is not, not that great, and everyone understands that he's probably not the world's greatest guy. That said, he, you got millions of dollars by carrying his bag around. <laughs> You're going to rip him. It's just insane. And you know what could be kind of an interesting after effect of this is Tiger Woods could kind of use this maybe as a stepping stone to a kind of rebuilding his image in a way because Stevie Williams is coming off as so bad and so pathetic and so bitter that if Tiger Woods just kind of takes the high road here, it can kind right. of maybe be the first step to him kind of rehabilitating his image in some way. Yeah, I mean, he, everyone always thought that Steve Williams was kind of, you know, rude and, and over the top with how he defended Tiger Woods. And now they just, I think, see that he's just rude and over the top. And it, it actually makes Tiger Woods look sympathetic to people. Yeah, which is a big change compared to how things have been going in the last couple of years. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you also do a college football preview, and everyone around here and around everywhere is super excited about football this year and getting back at it. And uh, Oklahoma took a huge hit today with the announcement that Travis Lewis has a broken bone is going to miss eight weeks. Where do you see the college football landscape this year? And maybe as a general question to get us started, like, what are you most excited about for college football this season? What storylines are you excited to follow? What game? There's some really interesting uh, non-conference games off the top. Like, what are you most pumped up for? I think I'm just um, most pumped up for what you said, just the fact that it's back. The the whole um, NFL lockout, I got so tired of hearing about the NFL, and this is coming from a, a big NFL fan. Like, when the lockout finally ended, um, everyone's like, yay, you know, the NFL's finally back. And then camps opened, and we went right back to normal. But I was like, the NFL never went away. There was more no- news about the NFL this year than there was any other year that I can remember. So I almost had like NFL fatigue by the end of the the lockout before the football even started, and I was just really excited to get to the start of college football season. I, I thought it'd be if there was going to be a lockout that extended into the regular season. I was really excited just to have the complete focus of the sports world kind of on college football and just have Saturdays be the day. And everyone, I mean, there are there's a huge focus on college football anyway. But I, I was really looking forward to the college football season. I think even more so now because of the lockout and all that, all the lawyers and bargaining and all that junk, um, which is uh, to acknowledge at the same time, <laughs> college football has not really had the most banner off season ever. No. Um, consider, you know, you can just rattle off top 25 teams who uh, everyone believes are completely corrupt <laughs> um, and, and kind of are completely corrupt. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm just excited. I mean, nothing really, no you know, particular storylines, um, I'm just really excited for the start of college football season because I was just waiting for it all summer because I wanted the the NFL to go away. You know, we got some great games right at the top. The very first week of the season in the Jerry Dome, we got LSU versus Oregon, I believe. And then the second week, it's Oklahoma and Florida State. Some really cool um, non-conference matchups. Ooh. Well, you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned Oklahoma, um, and I think, I mean, no one wants to see anyone get hurt. But since they're the, the clear favorite right now, if they drop back a little bit, it makes the season even more wide open. And I think right. that's always exciting in college football when you there's not a clear favorite. I mean, even last year, you know, Auburn ends up winning. And no one, I mean, we don't know if there's another Cam Newton coming from somewhere. I mean, he, 
no one was picking Auburn to win a national championship last year. Um, so I think it's exciting that there's a lot of teams that could uh, could compete this year. The very first guest we ever had on this show is Jeff Passan, and it was the day after the national championship game, and he came on, you know, to talk about his book Death to the BCS. Where do you stand on the whole BCS issue in terms of? It's obviously what we're stuck with, but if you could pick how the end of the college football season was going to play out, would it be a playoff? Would you like the old bowl system? Are you happy with the BCS? Would you want a plus one? What would be your ultimate end to the college football season? Um, well, yeah, I really hate the BCS um, probably as much as or even more than I, I just like caddies. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I think it's an awful, awful system. I mean, that said, it is. I think it's better than the old bowl system. I mean, because you would have teams, you know, like the number one team in the country playing in the Orange Bowl against like the 14th ranked team, and it meant absolutely nothing. They were just complete exhibition games. At least now there's one game at the end of the season that at least has some significance, even though it's completely fraudulent and other teams that deserve a shot or are undefeated don't get, you know, it. Yeah, I still think I think it is better than the bowl system, but for the BCS conferences to be like, oh, this is the best it would ever get. You better enjoy this, people, or you know, we'll make it worse on you. Like the whole this threat over them is insane. I mean, sports are the one things in life that you can. There's a clear outcome for, um, you know, the scoreboard. That's the way you determine everything. College football, as popular it is, has found a way to screw that up. <laughs> They've taken sports where you can find a winner all the time and put a, a question into it why not um you know everyone always debates the numbers is it four teams or 18 teams or eight teams or 16 teams um people smarter than i can i guess could find that i would i would think eight would be fine and yes there's always going to be the controversy if, if the ninth team's getting screwed just like this year the third team's getting screwed but i would much rather have an undefeated there's not going to be an undefeated ninth ranked team right. getting left out there's going to be undefeated third-ranked team or fourth-ranked team or someone with one loss who's you know getting left out when other teams with one loss are going in. I'm much I'm I'm much happier with screwing the ninth-ranked team than the third-ranked team. Um, so I just don't understand why uh, they can't start the little playoff system you know mid-December and make everyone incredibly happy. It would make a fortune, and I just I don't see the problem. I don't I don't understand why it doesn't happen now really. Sportscasters are here with DJ Gallo. You can follow him on Twitter. He is at DJ Gallo ESPN. Of course, he writes for ESPN Page 2, and his website is sportspickle.com. A couple more questions before we let you go. We might as well just stick on the topic of college football. Everyone's looking for Andrew Luck to have a huge season at Stanford. He's obviously the front runner going in for the Heisman Trophy. Who are some other players that you're looking forward to watching as they play out the season, that could maybe creep in and challenge Andrew Luck for that Heisman Trophy? Well, I think, like you said, I think it's Andrew Luck's completely... Uh, Tis to lose, yep. Yeah, and it, I, he, to me, he's the most exciting, or at least interesting story or player to watch this year, because there's a lot of history of guys who, like when Matt Leiner came back for his senior year, um, everyone said that, you know, he... He was golden. He was going to be the, obviously the number one pick because he was going to be his junior year. Um, and he, w- he was fine and he was awesome. And almost like Andrew Luck, like people can't imagine him having a bad year this year and his draft stock dropping. But if I was in his shoes, and I'm clearly not, um, I, would, I would always go out the earliest you possibly can. <laughs> I mean, what, 
it's awesome and sounds wholesome and great. Like, oh, he's coming back for his uh, senior year, and uh, he's going to try to win the Heisman and win a national championship, and he's just enjoying being a kid. And that sounds great until someone snaps your leg in half or, you know, your team doesn't play well around you. Um, and it's his decision awesome. He, I'm sure he'll be happy with it if all that doesn't happen. But I just don't see why it's worth risking um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, all that to lose. there's so much money at stake, but I wonder if the Sam Bradford situation maybe maybe helped play a role in his decision because Sam Bradford came back. The year was a total disaster. You know, he, really, he had a shoulder injury, of all things, for a quarterback. Was still the number right. one pick, still made a whole ton of money, and still seems like he's going to be a superstar in the National Football League. So maybe that might have swayed uh, Andrew Luck, but then... Yeah. You can look at Jay Locker, whose stock dropped a lot from coming back last year. He still made it into the top ten. And, um, you know, there's a couple other examples of maybe where it didn't turn out quite as well. Like you mentioned, Liner. Liner's just been a complete bust in general. Right. Yep. I, guess I, mean, I think other I mean, other guys I would watch, um, you know, Lattimore for South Carolina. I just think it's cool that a Steve Spurrier-led team is, like, dependent on a running back. That's <laughs> funny to watch. Um you know, Michael James, obviously. I, Bernard Robinson, um, he's amazing to play and uh, or amazing to watch play. And also, you just kind of peer through your hands all the time because you're afraid he's going to snap in half. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I mentioned Cam Newton coming out of nowhere last year. There's, there's going to be someone, I mean, the guys that we're mentioning, other than, again, we thank luck. I mean, a few of those guys always end up having a bad year and fall right out of it. I'm sure there'll be someone comes on out of nowhere that no one knows their name right now who will have a, a great year. That's, I think, what always makes college football kind of neat is the stories that you can't predict because, you know, obviously the roster turnover you have every year is unlike in the NFL. I mean, you can write down your star NFL players every year. Um, but college football is kind of neat that way. that it's, it's fresh and new every year. Sportscasters are here with DJ Gal. Again, you can find him at DJ Gal ESP, ESPN on Twitter. One last topic I wanted to talk about with you because you're, you're the perfect guy to talk about this with. Because we're big Twitter guys. We love Twitter. We enjoy Twitter. But I wonder how Twitter is for you because do you ever feel like you waste a joke on Twitter? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of times um, that, uh, especially, I have, I'm a, I have like 17 Twitter accounts, but um, on my Sports Pickle account, um, that sometimes I'll like write a joke and be like, ah, that would have worked, you know, as a headline or something. Right. Um, there's a few times that I've actually done that, like I'll... I just kind of meekly uh, then make it into a story the next day and hope no one's like, hey, you idiot, why did you use that again? Um, but, yeah, it, it's uh, yeah, it's hard not to waste a joke or be like, you know, uh, Twitter is instantaneous. I mean, you try not to write anything stupid that's going to, you know, make people, A, unfollow you or get you fired or something. Right. Um, but it's it's pretty much instantaneous thoughts that come out of your head and a lot of times you'll write something down and be like and, and you know post it You're like oh that would have been great for the podcast tomorrow or a column that I have coming up or it gives you a column idea but for every one every time that that happens I've actually found it helps me um, become more creative because I'm like always thinking and always writing about things when I, I think Twitter in a lot of ways has made me and I would encourage other people who are trying to become writers um, has really helped me as a writer as far as making my writing more concise and um, coming up with new ideas because it's it's always there ready to be used and 
I think if you can pull off a, a good thought um, or a good joke in 140 characters, that's that's something to be proud of, <laughs> you know, in a way. Um, I think Twitter actually, as much as old older people or mainstream kind of people make fun of it, like, oh, I don't care what you eat for lunch, and a lot of people use it that way. Um, but then there are other people who use Twitter to share really good links or um, write good information, and I, I think Twitter is really beneficial to to being a better and smarter and, and clearer writer. Yeah, I mean, if you're following the right people on Twitter, you can have a you know you can have a lot of fun. Some people are really funny. Some people, especially in sports, they give great stats or like you said, great links. So it's definitely not just you know what someone's having for lunch. And it seems like the people who don't use Twitter, they're the people who are always saying that that oh Twitter's right. just exactly. about what what you ate for lunch. Well, I, that just right. tells me you don't follow Twitter. Right. Yeah. It's also funny the way I'll find I'll, like certain news will be that I'll find out certain world news. Like, uh, you know, the U.S. credit <laughs> was downgraded, I found out via Chad Ochocinco's Twitter. <laughs> 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 News gets around in very strange ways on Twitter. It absolutely does. So it's DJ Gallo. So you said you have a bunch of Twitters. Did you want to throw any other ones out? I've been saying at DJ Gallo ESPN. Is there any other ones? Oh, that yeah, we well, yeah, follow? I have, uh, yeah, th- well, three mainly. Uh, DJ Gallo ESPN, um, that DJ Gallo, which is completely non-sports related. And then just the the one for the Sports Pickle website, which is just Sports Pickle. Uh, right. right. All right, so you can find DJ Gal at DJ Gal ESPN, that DJ Gal, and at Sports Pickle, sportspickle.com, ESPN page two, the ESPN page two podcast. Thanks a lot for finally coming on the show. We really appreciate it, and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Oh, no problem. Thank you. I appreciate okay. it. Thanks, buddy. I want to thank DJ Gallo for finally making his first appearance on the Sportscasters. Really appreciate appreciate having DJ on. You heard the nice, slow, <laughs> just breathe music. That means we have yet to create any production, <clears throat> Don, for it. the Five on Fantasy segment, but we will have it soon. In the meantime, not having the production doesn't take away from the fact that we've really enjoyed doing Five on Fantasy the last few weeks, and we're going to keep it going today. And I'm going to get us started. Last week I did my top 10 wide receivers, and today I'm going to give you my top 10 quarterbacks. Don's going to kind of compare them to ESPN. We'll kind of see where I stand as compared to some of the so-called experts on the Internet. And after 5 on 5 today, we're going to have an, an, an interesting conversation with Jay Clemens from the National Football Post. He writes about fantasy football over there. It'll be interesting to see what his takes are on some of the things we talk about on Five on Fantasy today. It'll be the first chance to do this, you know, Don? Yeah. We throw something out here, and then we see what someone else thinks. So as for my top 10 quarterbacks, I'm going to go in at number 10 with Tony Romo. I'm looking for a big bounce-back year from him after breaking his collarbone last year. I think he's a guy who does have some decent weapons. So I'm going to go with Romo at number 10. Number 9, I'm going to go with Big Ben Roethlisberger. He's a guy who throws it a lot more than you would think in a team like Pittsburgh, where you think of them traditionally as a running team. Uh, But in this Ben Roethlisberger era, he throws the ball quite a bit. Another guy who's had back-to-back 4,000-yard seasons who doesn't get much credit fantasy-wise is my number 8, and that's Eli Manning. 
I like Eli. If Hakeem Nix is going to be as great as everyone says he is, well, Eli's going to have to throw him that ball. At number seven, I have Matt Schaub. Schaub, of course, having the number one wide receiver on his team doesn't help Andre Johnson, but this is a team that just loves to throw the ball all over the field. I think Matt Schaub uh, is a nice pick there as my number seven. Now, my quarterbacks, I have a big six. This is the big six. I think Schaub, Manning, Roethlisberger, and Romo are starter options in a 10-team league. But I think these are my big six. Number six, I have Tom Brady. Number five, I have Phillip Rivers. Number four, I have Peyton Manning. Number three, Drew Brees. Number two, Michael Vick. And number one, Aaron Rodgers. I want to get personally one of those six guys as my starting quarterback. And if I'm going to do it, Don, I'm probably going to have to do it in the first three rounds, wouldn't you think? For, I would say at least up to Manning. You would have to do it in the first three rounds. And then it's probably pretty dicey if you skip on a guy after that because Rivers and Brady might not be along or around anymore when they get back to you. Um, I don't like Eli as much as you do and probably not Roethlisberger. I like Romo probably a little more than you do. What guys would you rather have in the top? Let's say you drop Eli and Roethlisberger out of the top ten. Who do you replace them with? I don't know because, like you said, there is that big drop. I guess I... Roethlisberger, you have rated right where ESPN does. Romo, you have about four spots lower. He's 10. You have him at 7. So, yeah, four guys lower, three guys, whatever. Um, I like Romo's offense a little bit better than Big Ben's. I think that's a team that wants to play ball control a little bit more. I think they want to run more. And I just think I think Romo's ceiling, I guess, is a lot higher. I think with Ben, he's probably a pretty safe player. Um, he doesn't make a ton of mistakes. He gets hit a ton, though. I mean, there's always a worry about injury with him. I if guess I, Romo is the same. Case if I were to too. put these 10 guys in tiers, I think my first tier would be Rodgers, Vic, Breeze, and Peyton. My second tier would be Rivers and Brady. And then my third tier would be Schaub, Manning, Roethlisberger, and Romo. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't, I'm not way off on that. I think I'd have Romo in with Schaub and then nobody else. I think I'd have Manning and Roethlisberger a little bit lower, but... That's pretty close. The one that ESPN is the furthest off compared to you is they don't like Eli nearly as much. They have him at 12 with Matt Ryan and Josh Freeman ahead of him mixed in with all the other guys you already have. Interesting. I, I, I like Freeman. I think Freeman's interesting. I think he was probably the next guy. Yeah. If I was to do a top 11, I think Freeman would probably be the next guy. The... I think my the top of my order would probably be the same as yours: Rogers, Vic, Breeze, Manning. Um, yeah, I think I think the top six. I have the same top six. I think I'd like to get one of those guys if possible, but I'm not one usually to go for quarterbacks all that early. My first thing this week: we talked a couple weeks ago about how this year compared, like last year, I think if you were picking, if you had your choice of where to pick, you're probably saying in the first two, because the surefire guys last year seemed to be. Peterson and Chris Johnson in whatever order. This year we said that's more like a top five with Peterson, uh, Chris Johnson, Arian Foster, Jamal Charles, Ray Rice, maybe LaShawn McCoy at the outside edge of that, depending on if it's PPR or not. All of a sudden, though, that top five, there aren't many sure bets in it. Uh, Adrian Peterson, I guess, really has no – he hasn't gone up or down stock-wise. He just has a bad team, but he's always had a bad team and done well with it. Chris Johnson now is a holdout. 
Arian Foster right. got hurt in practice. And I know it's nothing major, but he's been hurt in practice. Hold I'll, on one I'll, second. Go back to Chris Johns for a second. He didn't report today, which means he's already forfeited this season. As far as as far as it counting agency. against free agency, which means this holdout will go on as long as he until he gets paid. Yep. He's not going to play until they decide to pay him. So obviously, Chris Johnson, it's not a matter of health. I mean, it could be if he holds out and misses preseason games. You just you don't know. Could get ugly. And if you're drafting today, I mean, where do you even take him? I don't know. Um, chances are if you're drafting later like we are, it'll be settled by then. But if not, I mean, again, another guy off the board in that top five. Aaron Foster banged up a little bit today. Or right, the hurt weekend. practice. Uh, Jamal Charles really doesn't have the question marks, I guess, other than what he already had with Thomas Jones still being there, the team being terrible. And Ray Rice now has Ricky Williams, who is arguably better than Willis McGahee and might do more than just vulture carries. He might – or vulture touchdowns. He might – actually get some work in the backfield he worked he was actually better for a good chunk of his time in miami than ronnie brown was it will be interesting if ricky williams hurts or helps ray rice he could help him in the sense that you really can't do this by yourself right it's nice to have a second back get some carries loosen the load but the thing about ricky williams He's not really a traditional third down back. No, not at all. He so he's going to get some series, I think, where Ray Rice isn't going to step on the field while they have the ball, because Ricky Williams is more of a first and second down back. I don't know that he's necessarily a goal line guy either at this point in his career, but I think he's going to take overall more carries than that's interesting. Willis McGay he would have, and to to the greater point of this, I think if I had to draft today, I think Peterson is still my first pick. I think I might pick Jamal Charles, number two overall. Just being slightly worried about, I mean, not knowing at all about uh, Chris Johnson. And right, being a little Ray tiny Rice. bit worried about Foster's getting banged up already. Interesting. Interesting. And Foster is obviously coming off of a season where he was really, really utilized quite a bit. Right. You know, so interesting to see how his body reacts to that. People have him as, on some boards, as the number one overall pick. Especially in leagues like PPR. That gets, like you said, he's utilized everywhere. My number two thing is just a couple quarterback sleepers. I mentioned Josh Freeman already as someone that if I was going to take anyone out of my top 10 and replace them with someone else, Josh Freeman would probably be the first quarterback I would do that with. If I'm going to wait a long time to get my first quarterback and I end up with Josh Freeman, I'm cool with that. Another guy I'm cool with that is Matt Stafford. Absolutely. If Matt Stafford can stay up the whole year, he's going to be awesome. And he's a guy that if I get as my number two, I'm thrilled. And if I get him as my number one, I'm okay with it. I think I think he's a guy who's going to have a really, really nice season. I like Matt Stafford. I think if he's your number one, you probably ideally want a guy that's about that same level. Right, like maybe have Stafford and Freeman. Right, and play the matchups. Right. Uh, but, yeah, I think he's another guy to keep an eye on. And my third sleeper, I mean, there's not a lot of really great sleepers at quarterback. It's Sam Bradford. I, yeah. I think he's another guy who's kind of like Stafford, just going to get better and better. And it'll be interesting to see with Danny Amendola and Donnie Avery healthy again and the addition of Mike Sims-Walker. How I don't know if you know this, but he threw 55 passes in a game last year, <laughs> Sam Bradford. So he's, he's going to throw the ball a lot. And just one guy I'm staying away from is Kevin Cobb. I'm just not interested in him. I want to see him do it for a year. I just know I'm not going to draft him. You might like him more than I do. He's just a stay away from me. I'd like to see it, 
but where he's going, I guess there's a little risk in it. I mean, if your number one is Aaron Rodgers, then maybe I'd take Kevin Cobb. He's the, on ESPN's board, he's the 18th quarterback. Matthew Stafford, surprisingly, is the 17th. And it must have to do with injury because the guys above him, Matt Castle, Jay Cutler, I'd rather have Stafford than either of those. Sam Bradford, uh, you can make an argument for either of those guys. Joe Flacco, I might rather have Bradford and Stafford above Flacco. And then you get into your Eli's, Matt Ryan's. and But I... I think Stafford has a very, very high upside that he just carries a lot of risk with him. Absolutely. My second fantasy topic today is uh, waivers. And I've never had much of an opinion on waivers one way or the other until last year when two or three of the leagues I was in started using a free agent budget. And now I will say that is the only way to do it if you're going to have free agency. I think it's perfect. The blind bid system. The blind bidding, right. Mm-hmm. You get a certain amount of money, $100, $200, and everyone puts in a bid for free agency. That way it's not – first come, first serve doesn't work because it's just the first guy to sit at his computer. Right, and some people have advantages based on their job. Right. right? Some people maybe have a job where they're in front of the computer every, every day. So, bam, first come, first serve. That's a, that's that's a huge it, advantage. Right. Um, Waivers based on priority, that's just the whole thing. And it depends. If your league is slightly casual, then people might just sit on their waivers forever. And that's just the that whole thing. That can get frustrating. Yeah. And, but the auction budget is perfect. Uh, you give a certain amount of money out, $100, $200, fake money. And when a player comes out, everyone puts a blind bid on the guy. Winner wins the player. You just got to tweak when you have the bids, how often you have the bids. And some websites handle this really well. I'm going to put a little plug in for myfantasyfootball.com. They actually even have a way where I can take away my right as the commissioner to see the bids. So it's really fair. This way... Myfantasyleague.com. Myfantasyleague.com. Okay. So like, there's a way where you can take away the commissioner's permission from seeing the bids. So now nobody has to question it at all. There's no hanky-panky going on, no silly stuff. And I can blind bid right along with the rest of the league. And I love the blind bidding system as well. And maybe we'll ask Jay Clemens when he's on the show about you know what an expert thinks is the best way to do it. But Don and I are in agreement. We both love the, the blind bids. For our little debate today, or our last thing in 5 on Fantasy, what we're going to do is talk about drafting and what the best way to do it is. There is obviously two... Two main ways. The first way is the standard, been around the longest, snake draft. Right. Where you go 1 to 10, whoever has 10 has first in the next round, and you go backwards. Right. And then you get all the way down to whoever had 1, and they go for 2, and then you go back up. And then the second way is the auction draft. So what do you prefer, Don? I have never, I've never done an auction, but it's supposed to be the ultimate in uh, – fairness and there's everybody, everybody has, has a, a chance at, at every everyone. player right i guess basically what you do is in some sort of order you nominate a player you say i bid one dollar in this guy and so on and so on so really the only thing you have to determine is who you put up on the auction block first and i i think it's very interesting i think auction guarantees that you're in a league that's going to be a little more hardcore it's going to be a tougher league to get someone that just wants to play casually to come out and try to play because it's it's there's a lot of serious you need serious and committed players for an auction so that would be a downside to it i guess if you want to just play in a in a fun now if you choose to go the snake draft way is snake the best way there's also 
a few other things that have been thrown out. One is called the third round reversal. You want to explain that? Yeah, the third round reversal is where you do just that. You reverse the third round. So your round one, you would pick. If you pick first in round one, you pick first, and then it snakes in the second round. You pick tenth in the third round. You pick tenth, and then in the fourth round, you pick tenth. So all that happens is it's a, it's a snake draft with just the third round flipped. So if you're picking one, it's one, ten, ten, one, ten, one, ten, one, ten. So it that supposedly is. I read an article. Mathematically? I read an article by one guy, and I've never been able to see uh, an article that analyzes it with as much data since this. And I know this article is from 2007, so it's old at this point. It's from footballguys.com. And he talks about the differences between the normal snake draft or serpentine draft, the third round reversal, which is also called bonsai, the third round serpentine, which is you flip the third and fourth round, I believe. Person who drafts first in round one goes last in round two and round three. And then it flips the rest of the draft. Hmm. So there's a twist between round two and three. And then there's a double serp- serpentine, which is another draft. I mean, you can look at this article. Like I said, it's on footballguys.com. Just search for third round reversal, and I'm sure the article will pop up. But what he did is he assigned a value to every player from, I think, the season before that. And then he gave that value to where their average draft position was, saying, like, if you drafted this guy first, blah, blah, blah. And he figured out a standard deviation from where you would pick in the draft. And he said in 12, 14, and 16-team formats, the third-round reversal had the smallest percentage difference from, like, the highest and lowest point in the draft. Whereas in the snake draft... It's always best to pick first and second. Despite people that'll be like, oh, I like to pick 10th, it's always back to best to pick first if you know what you're doing. S- Snake is something like a 12% difference, so it's very high. One thing that we tried in the past in one of our leagues is to do every round randomly. So there'd be a new order for every round. And that's cool. There's a lot more trading at the draft if you do it that way. But there's so many... like. You could be so screwed that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, you could literally draft 10th for like five straight rounds. Or someone could draft first for three straight rounds or something. So it really doesn't work. It, it seems like it would be, it's fun because you got this crazy draft board, but it just doesn't work at all. And <laughs> that said, it's hard to, even with the data that this guy compiled in 2007, it's hard to convince anybody to do anything other than a standard snake. Yep. People listen, or hear that they're drafting. First overall, and then tenth, and then tenth, and then tenth, and then tenth again, are going to be like no way. Even though it's the most fair, according to this guy's calculations, nobody seems to like it. So I, like you said, I'd be interested to do an auction draft, but you have to find the right set of guys, and it's hard to find ten guys that serious about it. I guess right. So ultimately, it comes down to snake versus auction, and I think snake is much easier. It's a lot quicker. Although now with ESPN having auctions online and that being a free option, that's something you can look into and and maybe that would streamline the process a little bit, but it, it would take considerably longer. So I don't know. Yeah. I'm a snake <laughs> guy, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm. the snake is just easy because everyone understands it. All the online drafts are set up to do it. It's not necessarily the most fair, but everybody does it. And everyone puts their own little tweak on it, like keeper rounds or uh, – 
that just yeah, with, like in one draft that we have, we use the fifth round as kind of the golden round, and anyone you pick in the fifth round can be kept the next year for your sixth round pick. The only thing I was thinking about that now we're getting into uh, personal football teams, but the only thing I was thinking about that is that adds extra value to the first overall pick because then you're also picking first in the, in the fifth round. round. So it might be interesting in the future. But to then make again, that the guy who were who who made out the best this year had like the eighth or seventh pick in that yeah, round and got Aaron yep. Foster. So there's, it all comes down to luck anyway. Right. So, but one cool thing about today is all this stuff that we debated and we talked about. We can get a third opinion from one of the most respected fantasy writers in the country, and that's Jay Clemens. So let's take a break right now, and we'll come right back with Jay Clemens and talk a little bit more fantasy football. On the banks of the Red Cedar is a college known to all. Our next guest is from Detroit, Michigan, and is a graduate of Michigan State University. He also earned a master's degree from Wayne State University. He has spent over a decade writing for magazines, newspapers, and various online mediums. In 2008, he was named Fantasy Sports Writer of the Year by the Fantasy Sports Writers Association for his work at Sports Illustrated. Today, he maintains the Fantasy Philanthropist blog at the National Football Post. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the talented Jay Clemens. How are you doing today, Jay? I'm doing fine, thank you. That is the warmest introduction I've probably ever gotten from doing at least 1,000 uh, radio interviews in the last three years, so I appreciate it very much. Thank oh, you. Oh, good. We would like to make uh, we would like to prop up our guests, make them sound good. You know, it's funny, last week, I think it was Andrew Pirloff was from Dartmouth. We always try to play the fight songs of whoever comes on, and they yeah. had lyrics in theirs. That was the first one, and it's funny now, back-to-back weeks, the Michigan State fight song had lyrics, too. I wasn't kind of expecting that. But yeah, I was. Uh, I I uh, I know Andrew rather well. He's a good guy, but you know when anyone hears that song, they don't think Dartmouth. Their first association is with Michigan State. You know the words are different for every school, and so you know that you could go anywhere in this country, and that's a Michigan State song. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. Dartmouth is just basically you know uh, piggybacking off our success. Definitely. <laughs> so here's the thing. So the other night I was trolling Twitter. And it's kind of a boring Sunday night, and you were kind of blowing it up a little bit with some football videos. I was getting all pumped up. I loved them. All, all kinds of just random videos, the immaculate reception, and also this crazy end sequence to a game in 1980 between the Vikings and the Browns. And you said, make sure you ask me about that on Tuesday. So I put it in my notes, and let's just start there. So Ahmad Rashad with the, with the just kick to the gut of everyone in Detroit, huh? Well, here's the backstory. Uh, that game was played on a Saturday afternoon. The, the, remember uh, back in the day, which wasn't too long ago, but back in the day when uh, the college games ended in this late November, early December, before we had championship games, the NFL would move a couple games to Saturday yeah. just so you know to fill that void. And I was seven years old uh, at Grizzly, Michigan, watching that game, and the Lions were trailing the Vikings by a game. Okay, so I knew that... You know, even in my infinite wisdom of a seven-year-old, I was aware that, you know, the Lions basically needed a miracle here. 
And Cleveland uh, would go on to win the division. I think they tied Houston that year, but I think they brought they had the tiebreaker. And so the Cardiac Kids of uh, 80, they, they won the division. So it was a big game for both teams. And the game was at the Met, you know, with the, before the, the, the second to last year before the Vikings moved. And it was a really good game. Minnesota had dominated pretty much the whole way, but Cleveland got ahead at the end. And I remember being extremely confident because the Lions had something like Green Bay, Tampa Bay to finish off the season. And the Vikings would have to play the Oilers next week, and the Oilers would go 11-5 that year and probably be the closest thing to the Steelers that season in terms of uh, quality teams. And so I was all excited, and I do it just like Michigan losing to Colorado in 94. Even though I'm a state grad, I've always sympathized with Michigan because my dad grew up a Michigan fan, and I, you know, I grew up a Michigan fan too, by extension. But I, I've never been more sure of a victory than that game between Cleveland and Minnesota in 1980 because they, had, they literally had to go 80 yards in 14 seconds. So they ran a little uh, flea flicker play. That to Ted Brown, I believe. I mean, I haven't even looked it up, but I'm pretty sure it was Ted Brown. And he gets like 39 yards. You know, like big deal. Charlie Jones, who is my favorite announcer of all time, used to work at NBC. Passed away a couple years ago. But, you know, he. I, as much as I loved Dick Denver growing up in Britain Musburger, Charlie Jones was my man. And that, that game was so exciting. And I vividly recall him saying that uh, Minnesota could win it with a field goal, knowing full well that they were 46 yards away. And they needed it. They were, you know, there's no, you can't kick a field goal. You can't kick a 63 yarder outside of Minnesota in December. You just can't do it. Right. So I remember just yelling at the screen, going, like, well, what does a field goal matter? It doesn't matter. And sure enough, Tommy Kramer throws at a, <sighs> that Hail Mary uh, touchdown to Ahmad Rashad, who I believe only played one or two more years. And then he was in TV. I had never even heard of Ahmad Rashad, really. I mean, that was the first time where he was like, part of your everyday vernacular in terms of being out there. And that, that play, well, you know, he had a great career, don't get me wrong, but that play really put him on a national level. And, uh, you know, kind of, uh, it was a major punch in the gut for me. And uh, that was like my first experience of heartache as a Detroit fan because we started 4-0 that year. And the Lions won their first four games something like 31-10 to 10 average score. Ooh. And they just melted down the stretch. And, you know, you just... You kind of live, you uh, you know when you grow up in Detroit, you learn to live with Lions heartache. It's that simple. But at the same time, I was so close to to feeling something that very few people above me at my age, including my dad, even got to feel. And I almost felt it at seven years old. But that uh, that hail mary took it all away. But anyway, people don't care about that. <laughs> <laughs> so were you crushed? Were you maybe not equally as crushed? I'm sure, but were you slightly crushed when the Lions' second round pick went down with? Uh... Well, here's the thing. Um, growing up, majoring in journalism, I, I put on my journalism hat. Like, I, I want the Lions to do well. I used to work for the Lions back in 04 and 05. And I've got some you know, great stories, uh, another podcast if you ever want to hear them. But uh, basically, I, as much as I want the Lions to do well, I'm not a Lions fan. Like, I'm not wrapped up. I'm more, in, I'm more about the NFL, more about trying to remain objective. But I will say this, though. I mean, all my friends, a good portion of my friends, even friends that live here in Atlanta, are from Michigan. And so we, you, you can't help but talk Lions the whole time. And I was really excited for Michael Shore's potential. I don't know if he was going to get something like 800 yards rushing or anything like that, but I thought he was a pretty good bet for 10 touchdowns. And if you're going to take Javi Best in a standard scoring or PPR league, I would think LaShore, before the injury, was um, probably in the top five of must-handcuff guys. And so I was really excited for his potential. He had an amazing game against Northwestern at Wrigley Field last year. 
you know, I think he still has chunks of Northwestern defenders on his cleats. It was that <laughs> great of a performance. And I really would have liked to see how uh, the best LaShore experiment would have uh, fared in year one. But, you know, I, I wish him nothing the best. The good thing is he got hurt now, which means he may be 100% this time next year. Right. Usually those are one calendar year, so like you said, it's nice. If it's going to happen, it might as well happen now instead of like in November where you almost lose two seasons. I do want to talk about a fantasy football with you, and you brought we brought up a rookie there. So let's just start with rookies. Do you think there's any rookies this year, and usually it's at the running back position, if anywhere, that can have an impact for a fantasy team this year? Oh, sure. Some can have an impact. Uh, I'm just not banking on them. If Ryan, I think Ryan Williams will be the best fantasy rookie running back by year's end, and we're talking about standard sport, okay? Right. Uh, I think he'll be the most value, you know, the best value of any rookie receiver, running back, quarterback, tight end, whatever, this year. But if I get him in any league this year, and I'm in, what, 10 leagues, so I'm bound to get him in at least one or two leagues, especially since I'm high on him. He's not going to be a starting consideration for me. He will be a fourth or fifth back in every single time. And if he's anything better than that, that means I just didn't do my job on draft day. So if he emerges as a great fantasy back, which I hope he will, he will it will it'll happen with him, you know, fourth or fifth on my bench and not even he won't even be a starting consideration until teams are going through bye weeks starting week four, unless he's blowing up early on. And I just don't see that happening. With the lockout you got a lot of rookies here who were in who were in track shape for the draft, but they're not necessarily in football shape. And you can say, well, OTAs and minicamps don't really matter. Well, they don't really matter for veterans, but rookies need to know how to get ready for a season. And I, every rookie across the board, and there'll be exceptions, of course, but every rookie or most rookies across the board are going to have a real tough time adjusting this year. And I don't think uh, Ryan Williams will be any different. We uh, we. We talk a lot of fantasy football on the show, and we were kind of we were scanning th- we were scanning through some drafts last week, and we noticed we noticed a mock draft that had the backup running back. I don't know why his name has slipped my mind in Jacksonville as a fifth round pick. Should we really be that concerned about Maurice Jones Drew that his backup would be as high as a fifth round pick, or was that just someone being crazy? Did I have him as a round five pick? No, it wasn't you. Okay. Like, it was just some draft I've had that we've seen. Jennings as high as seven. Okay. okay. Yeah. But here's the thing, though. Um, uh, if you draft MJD, and I will try my hardest to avoid drafting him this year in round one, say if I get like pick 10, 11, or 12. And I may even try hard to avoid him at picks 13, 14, 15, you know, because I'm not so much worried about the knee. I just think that he's had so many touches, and I think Jacksonville really, really wants to integrate. Jennings into the offense. You know, if I if I was just looking at the backup running backs on every team side, um, maybe aside from uh, Jonathan Stewart, just from a pound per pound uh, perspective, well, I say that five times fast, but uh, <laughs> I would have Jennings probably in the top five, maybe even in the top three. I like his talent. I like his build. I think he is has a lot of priest homes in him. Where if you gave him a chance to be a starting back, and I'm not cheering for an MJD injury, but if he were traded to a team that had a decent O line. I think you could he could really tear it up both uh you know from a rushing and receiving point of view. So round five is a little high, but if I'm taking M J D in round one, at the end of round one, I better make sure that I have Jennings no later than round seven because I'm gonna regret it all year. Even if Jen, even if M J D has a great year, you're always gonna be one wondering 
if you're just one small injury away or if you're, if say Jacksonville has a really poor record and they tend to devote all of their carries and resources to building up Jennings, you're really going to regret it. So, you know, he's a big time handcuff situation and, uh, you know, round five is a little high, but round seven, that, that's perfect. Interesting. So at the top, let's talk about running backs for a second. So it seems like there's kind of a big three or four with Foster, Johnson, Peterson, Rice. Maybe if you want to include Charles as a as a fifth. I have a big six. Big I have six. a big six. Any okay. order, it, depending on your scoring rules, my big six are Foster, Peterson, Chris Johnson, Jamal Charles, Ray Rice, and LaShawn McCoy. Okay. Yeah, I'm high on McCoy as well. I like McCoy a lot. It seems to drop off a bit after that. If you if you could pick any if you could pick any pick in the first round, where would you want to pick? Um, people have asked me that a lot, and uh, ten team league. And, and I don't mean to demean people that are in ten team leagues, but if you're in a ten team league and half the owners are good at fantasy and the other ones just kind of play it on a, uh, you know, just kind of they just show up for the draft and, and you know they do a little prep. You should get in the playoffs every time with a 10-team league because everyone, in theory, is going to have all-stars at the starting spots, okay? And so depth really comes an issue. I mean, you, I can think of a couple, three, what was that, three years ago, 08, was that Chris Johnson's rookie year. Even after Johnson had an amazing preseason for the Titans, okay, we had a draft, I had a draft with a bunch of friends, 10-teamers, and I got Chris Johnson around 16. That's embarrassing. And so you're, if you have a 10-league, if you're, if you're on top of your game, if you do draft prep in a 10-team league, you should be fine. So any slot is good. But when you're talking about a 12-team league, uh, obviously one is great because not only do you have one, but you also have 24 and 25 on the turn. So that's pretty cool. But basically, I don't want the option of having the number one pick this year because I feel just as strong about the one of the big six like Ray Rice at the, bottom, at the back end of the big six as I do Foster this year. And I'm personally guaranteeing that Ray Rice will have 2,000 total yards and maybe even double-digit touchdowns this year, although Ricky Williams probably will vulture a few touchdowns from him. But I'm supremely confident that Rice Rice will have 2,000 total yards. So if I was drafting in a 12, I would want pick 5, I would want 6, and then I'd want 10 and 12. 5 is really good because in the first four, you're running an excellent chance that someone is going to splurge for Michael Vick. And I personally don't draft quarterbacks in right. round one. So if you have somebody taking Vic at four, that means that you have your choice of either Peterson, Chris Johnson, Jamal Charles, or Arian Foster, because one of those four will slip to number five. And you, and you won't even have to think about it. And that's the great thing about round one. People always ask me about round one and Twitter. Round one doesn't really matter. You're going to get a superstar, no matter what. It's what you do after that that makes a championship team. How much do you boost Javid Best after the injury to the rookie out there in Detroit last uh, the last couple of days here? In terms of Best? Yeah. You think that helps him at all? Uh, have... I, I think I have him 17 in PPR leagues, and I, be- I, 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 I haven't looked at it, but I think he's somewhere around the 23 range for standard scoring leagues. The bottom line is he may get a few more touches from this, but at the same time, the Lions, he, he's not built for goal line carries. He's not built for fourth and one. He's a between the twenty guy, between the twenty guys, and he's going to get a lot of passes. You know, I, his uh, receptions probably weren't going to be affected by Lashore's game. And Jerome Harrison, who I fully supported, Harrison, as you may remember, had five hundred and sixty-one rushing yards and five touchdowns in the last three games of the '09 season. That was only twenty months ago. 
Mm-hmm. And he's young. I think he's something like 27, 28 years old. There's no reason if, give, if he knows he's going to see consistent touches from the Lions, especially in special, special situations like goal line and fourth and one and stuff like that, I think he'll do real well. I mean, he had 39 carries in a game for the Browns a couple years ago. That's just not going to happen with Best. And even if Best wasn't there, they still wouldn't do that. But at the same time, I like the give and take of what Best and Harrison can do. And um, but I wouldn't read into it uh, just because Best is by himself now in theory. I really don't think his workload will improve that much. He, he's a Jamal Charles, if anything, where you would be shocked if he had more than 250 touches in any given year. You said that you're not really going to be one to draft Maurice Jones-Drew this year. Is there any other running backs that you're staying away from? Uh, I don't mean to, I don't know why I feel this way, but I just have that sense, my spiny tingling, that senses are tingling, telling me that Frank Gore just isn't going to hold up for the year. I like Frank Gore. He's great in PPR leagues. He gets a ton of targets. He, I think he had something like 76 targets in 11 games last year. And, you know, do the math, that's seven a game. That's pretty darn, pretty darn good. And, uh, I just have a feeling this year that it, whether it's a broken hip, I, I don't think he'll hurt a knee. Something like a broken, I just don't, I, I never assume injuries. But, I, but I'm, I am a little weary that he will make it for the 16th. And I kind of wish that Glenn Coffey was still in the league because I like Anthony Dixon. He's a great short, you know, great goal line guy. But at the same time, it's not somebody you can really handcuff in round 16 to Frank Gore thinking that he would be able to dominate if given full-time carries. I thought Glenn Coffey, when he played at Alabama, had the stuff to be a great running back in this league. You know, if you don't want to play, that's fine. I mean, you know, no big deal. But at the same time, I wish the 49ers had Brian Westbrook from five years ago or something like that because I just, I'm just a little scared that Gore won't hold up for the whole year. Do you think any of the New Orleans running backs can be a number two fantasy running back, or do you think that it's just going to be split too thin? Well, well, let's see. Uh, how about I answer your question, which is a very valid question now this way. Do I think any running back will rush for 1,000 yards with New Orleans this year? Absolutely not. Um, I doubt any of the running backs will get double-digit touchdowns. So it, 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 with those parameters in place, it's hard to see any Saints running back as a viable number two in a 12-team league. Pierre Thomas... Uh, I like very much, and I would have no problem starting him in that flex spot every week in a standard scoring league. But in a PPR situation, he's going. I'm going to have to really think about starting him and benching him. You know, the same. You know, the, the same thought press will will kick in every single week because I like him very much, but he's definitely not a number two in my mind. He's a number three back, along with Ingram, along with Sproles and PPRs, and um, I just there's just too many carries. And, I mean, there's just too many players and not enough carries because you know that Drew Brees is going to, you know, whatever he averages in terms of passes every year, something in the 420 range, I don't have the number. But whatever that number is, I guarantee you he'll be there. The, the Saints incidentally have uh, a game in the southern climate or indoors, like in a dome stadium, uh, every week from weeks 2 to 17. And they're only in their game one, week it's one game, Bay, is at right. Green Bay. September, and I guarantee it's going to be great weather that night in Green Bay. So, you know, but Breeze, you're, it's, it's quite possible that Breeze will not have one bad weather game this entire year. And that just means a lot of passing. And, uh, and if you can get a Saint player at good value at any point in this draft, I highly recommend it. 
Let's talk about wide receivers for a minute. And there's two guys who the rankings in the preseason have been kind of crazy to me. And that's Hakeem Nix and Mike Wallace. Everyone just seems to be so high on these two guys. But I don't, I mean, are you buying into those two guys as top five receivers? Uh, top five, no. Uh, well, for Wallace, uh, Nix is number four for me in both PPR and standard scoring leagues, I believe. Uh, I was just looking at the PPR list the other day. He's number four. He may be number five in standard scoring leagues, but regardless, um, the Giants have evolved into a pass-first team. And the emergence of, of Mod Bradshaw, who was also good in the passing game, and kind of the deflation of uh, Brandon Jacobs, you know, this exacerbates that evolution. Uh, I never would have believed that a Tom Coughlin team would be so dedicated to the passing game. But even when Steve Smith doesn't play at full strength this whole year, the Giants have plenty of receiving options. Um, you know, and I'm even including Travis Beckham in that mix. So, you know, Nix is a guy, yeah, I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but he's the type of guy that can get you double-digit targets, seven catches, and he can get up to three touchdowns in any given opponent. There's really, unless they're playing the Jets on Christmas Eve, I, I, where I don't like Nix's chances for three touchdowns, he can literally carry you to a fantasy victory any week, any other week this year. So I'm definitely buying him as a top five. Mike Wallace, uh, he's got a lot of hit or miss to him. Um, his stats are going to look great at the end of the year. But there's going to be three or four games where he goes for maybe double-digit receptions, maybe multiple touchdowns, and he'll have a lot of other games where it's just four catches for 56 yards. And if you can deal with that, if you, if you know ahead of time when you're drafting him that you're going to have a, you know, a big flurry one day and just average stats the next, and it'll come out looking great at the end of the year, but it necessarily won't lead you to victories, then uh, by all means draft him. But at the same time, he's not a number one in my mind. And if he is a number one, I better hope that I have the two and three guys at receiver drafted like in the next two or three rounds. Let's talk about Sidney Rice for a second. He's been a number one guy oh for the last couple of seasons, but he, he seemed to put himself in a position of just kind of fantasy irrelevance in Seattle. Is he a number three to you now? Uh, yes. He's a... I would put him on good footing for a three. Where I, If I was in a PPR league, and I would start him pretty much every week. But at the same time, there's just so much unknown with going to Seattle. Yeah, he has Daryl Bevel who was his offensive coordinator in Minnesota. So there's familiarity with the system, which is something you cannot um, underestimate in a, in a lockout ravaged year like we're, like we're experiencing right now. So that definitely helps. But at the same time, I have no faith in Tavares Jackson, Charlie Whitehurst, and a, on a long-term scale. No matter which quarterback they throw out there, yeah, they're prone to having a good game here and there maybe getting the masses thinking that they can be consistent all year, but I just don't see it. You know, if Seattle had worse talent, like on the offensive and defensive lines, I would think that they were a viable candidate for the Andrew Luck sweepstakes of next year. But their talent is just too good for them to be 3-13 and or 4-12 and bad this year. But their quarterback situation is brutal. I'm shocked that they didn't make a play for Carson Palmer trade-wise. You know, and they may have in, a private, in private talks with uh, the Brown, I mean, with the Bengals. But uh, I just, you know, if you would have told me three months ago that Tavares Jackson would be the starting quarterback in Seattle and that was the Seahawks' first choice, I would not have believed you. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very strange situation there. How, how afraid are you of Kenny Britt and his kind of 
unwillingness to stay out of trouble? Because the talent is there. I mean, he could be a talent. I don't guy. know. I, I, I kind of hedge back and forth. I think the real, per, I, I guess the, this is probably a question I can answer better once I have a real draft. And my first real draft is the actual National Football Post draft on Monday. And we'll see what happens. Like, it, it's easy for me to rank him at 23, 24, 21, whatever it may be on a given week. Right. And think that, okay, fine. You know, like, that, there's probably a chance I won't get him. Because someone, I'm sure someone has him higher, like 16, 17. But push comes to shove. If he's sitting there, maybe against somebody like Steve Johnson or something like that. And I like Steve Johnson. I wrote about him last week in the National Football Post. But if I was looking at passing offenses, like just potential between those two in terms of getting more touchdowns, getting more receptions, you know, when push comes to shove, I would probably lean toward Brett. Uh, especially if Hasselbeck is going to be the QB uh, all year in Tennessee. Interesting. Now, last year, you mentioned Stevie Johnson. Uh, Mike Williams comes to mind. As someone who was drafted in the later rounds that really had a fantastic season, do you have any sleepers at the wide receiver position, someone that we can pick up late? I'm ashamed to admit it, but I've been touting Muhammad Massacoy for the Browns all summer long, and he is yet to practice. I guess he's got a deep bone bruise. You know, I, I don't know what that means. I mean, it, 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 I've had many bruises in my day from playing sports, but it's never kept me out for weeks on end. <laughs> you know, so I, I hope that this bone bruise, I got my hand in air quotes, which is horrible for radio right now, but uh, yeah, I hope it's nothing more than just a deep bone bruise, like, like the coaches are saying, though, because I have immense faith in him becoming that third aspect of the Browns offense where, where that you can rely on. We already have Peyton Hillis. Uh, to some extent, we have Ben Watson, who Ben Watson may not stand out in fantasy, but in a PPR league, he's gold. You can wait till round 10 or 11 and get somebody like him because he, there's going to be half the games this year where he's going to draw up to eight or more targets a game. And, you know, that's gold in PPR circles. You don't have to break the bank to get a tight end. But as far as Mascoy goes, I love his talent. Um, yeah, yeah, I saw pretty much every reception he had at Georgia living here in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, obviously Matthew Stafford, my, my man crush in many years, uh, he has, uh, you know, he threw a lot of those passes to Massacoy in college. But I believe in Massacoy's talent. I believe in his eventual ability to become a number one receiver. And I'm, I, you can get him round 12, round 13, round 14, maybe in some round 15 this year, especially if he misses some preseason time. And I put my neck out there on the assumption that he will have a Sidney Rice kind of breakout that Sydney had two years ago. I'm not saying 1,100 yards and 80 receptions, but I think 65 receptions, 1,000 yards, and maybe seven touchdowns isn't, a, isn't that far out of reach. A guy that's really interesting to me is a guy who had a lot of success a few years ago but was terrible last year, and that's Mike Sims-Walker. He's now in St. Louis. Sam Bradford seems like a, a guy who could really be a stud in the league there's not a lot else there. Is he someone you're interested in this year as a potential late-round sleeper, or do you think he's a stay away? Well, I would disagree with your assumption that there's not a lot there in St. Louis. Uh, okay. They, without offending anybody in any order, they have, obviously, Sims Walker. They have uh, Mark Gilliard, who they drafted a year or two ago. They have Greg Salas, who's a rookie. They have Danny, Danny Amendola. They have Mark Clayton. They have uh, Donnie Avery, who is another big sleeper pick. And with Josh McDaniels running that offense, okay, you, you can bash 
the Rams from a real-world perspective all you want in terms of uh, how they may shake out. Like, you know, they'll obviously compete in the NFC West, but they're nothing more than probably an 8-8 eight and eight team at this time. But they will certainly be entertaining to watch, just like the Broncos were uh, during McDaniel's short tenure there in Denver. And you're going to, you know, Sam Bradford threw 55 passes in week one last year. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying this in complete, I'm, I'm being completely honest with you. There's a chance that Bradford may break that in a game this year. And I find that absurd. I mean, the fact that somebody could throw 55 passes in a non-overtime NFL game just blows the mind. And I think you're going to see maybe five games from Bradford this year where he throws at least 45 passes. And so, you know, unless every Rams receiver is physically incapable of getting open, somebody is going to emerge with great PPR stats. And I think Mike Sims-Walker and Avery uh, top that list. We talked, you just talked a little bit about Bradford. So let's talk a little bit about quarterbacks. You said you're not the kind of guy who's going to draft one in round one. How long no. are you willing to wait? It, where, where in quarterbacks is it cut off for you as a starter? Is maybe Josh Freeman the lowest you can go uh, and be willing to have him as a starter? I mean, we're not kind of saying who's above him in that case. But who's the last guy before it drops off to backups to you? I hope it doesn't come to this. Because I, I, given his injury history, and I refuse to refer to him as injury prone, okay? But I can go as low as Matthew Stafford as a starter every single week and be confident. I, you know, if Stafford can make it all 16 games in Detroit, he's going to have numbers. I believe him and Kurt Warner are the only people in NFL history to throw five interceptions and then five touchdowns less than two weeks later. I mean, he has that talent. Um, I have these conversations with my dad all the time. He just doesn't see it in terms of, and I, and I tried to relate him, that Stafford is, will be the greatest thing that will ever happen to the, the, the Lions in the last 50 years. It just hasn't happened yet. And so I'm absolutely comfortable with him being a starter. I think he'll be a top-10 quarterback this time next year, assuming full health. And so I'm perfectly willing to ride that thing. I would draft a quarterback in round two. I would take Breeze or Aaron Rodgers. Brady or Vic, depending where I was drafting in round two, and I wouldn't be too bothered by it. I can take Peyton or Philip Rivers in round four, and I would be fine with that. But my history, my long history of playing fantasy football, says that I probably will wait till round six or seven or eight to draft a quarterback. I like to take quarterbacks back-to-back. You know, if you can get a guy like Breeze, where you know you're going to put him in there every single week except for his bye, by all means, do it. But at the same time, I look at value at every single pick. And when I'm drafting at the top of, you know, when I'm at the top of a draft, running backs have the greatest value to me. So I'm completely okay with loading up on running backs, even if it jeopardizes my receivers, tight ends, and quarterback. Because I know eventually, being the person that I am, that I'm going to want to make big-time trades. And when you have running back depth in a year where there's a lot of injuries, especially after a lockout, that's king. So at the expense of that, I'm probably not going to take a quarterback high. The sportscasters are here with Jay Clevins from the National Football Post. You can follow him on Twitter. He is at ATL underscore Jay Clemens. Let's talk a little bit about the game in general. One of the great things about fantasy football is there's so many different ways you can play it. If you are going to start a, a league from scratch, you're the commissioner. I'm giving you all the power to make the rules. Would you go... PPR? Would you go half a point? Would you go standard scoring? Like, how would you set up your league? What do you think the best way to play fantasy football is? 
Well, I'm the commissioner of a few leagues. I, I try to... I used to be the commissioner of everything because everyone used to, would label me as like the social director because I'm always the guy that's emailing people, keeping everybody in the loop. But with all the writing responsibilities and podcasting that we're going to have and interviews with people like yourself, it, it's, it's just hard to be a commissioner for every single league. Right. But I'm still the commission. Even though I don't work at Sports Illustrated anymore, I'm still the commissioner of the SI.com and Friends League. And so every year I get to pick how we're going to do it. And in a dream situation, I would love to do an auction. But... The, the, the thing is, we just don't have people that have time to commit to a two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour draft unless they're at a bar drinking. But if they're at the computer, that, that's the great thing about something like ESPN or Yahoo is that you can knock a draft out an hour and a half, yeah. and, every, and everyone moves on with their lives. So that's fine. But in a perfect world, I would like an auction. But uh, if, if we're, as much as I love PPR, not everybody loves PPR. Not everybody understands the, the little nuances of playing in a PPR league. So I'm okay with that. Uh, you know, I hate to answer your question in a very boring way, but I think standard scoring rules where you have, you know, four or five points for a touchdown pass and everything else six, six for, you know, for touchdowns mm-hmm. is the way to go. I do like rewarding kickers for long field goals. I hate leagues where it's just a straight three points if you make it and one if you miss it. Right. If, if you kick a 40 yard, it should be four points. If you kick something over 50, it should be five points. If for any reason you want to kick a 60 yarder, by all means, you should be credited for that. And, but those are little things that can be negotiated among the, amongst the other owners when you're formulating a league. Um, you know, the, the standard scoring approach is the standard scoring approach for a reason. It's the universal rules that most people play to. It's the, the rules that I write to, unless I specify otherwise, like in a PPR. Um, spectacular like we had last Friday and like we have in today. So, you know, it, it's, it's universal for a reason, and not everyone has the time to devote to fantasy football like I do. And so I, I, I fully understand that, and that's probably why I would just go with the standard stuff. Pretty boring, but at the same time, uh, fun nevertheless. What do you think the best way to handle waivers is? Just open waivers, maybe blind? I, I've, I've, in the last few years, really enjoyed blind bids. Uh, set up like a certain amount of money and do blind bids, or are you just more of a guy you like to just have it be open? I'm so excited to answer this question. No one has ever asked me this before in an interview. Oh. How how do I like to do waivers? This is so cool. Um, we do uh, for the SI. I'll use SI league as the best example. Okay. We use blind. We use blind bidding, and so every Wednesday at 10 o'clock p.m. and that's pretty much the date that we do it every time. On Wednesday at 10 p.m., there'll be a street blind bidding situation. Say, I, I believe we've been giving out 100 or $125, you know, in fake money right. to the owners. And so we will have a blind bidding auction every Wednesday at 10 p.m., and that's it. Like, uh, you can pick up a guy after the auction, of course, like a street free agent. Say you need somebody for Sunday, uh, but at the same time, uh, that the one first wave to get the best players is a simple thing at Wednesday at 10 o'clock at the National Football Post League that Joe Fortenbaugh, who also works there, hosts. The, the waivers are great because it, the waivers start at some arbitrary time on Wednesday, and it's literally first come, first serve, and it's not really beneficial to the people on the West Coast. It's more of an East Coast <laughs> League, so if you, you can clean up. I was on my honeymoon two years ago, <laughs> and I was still cleaning up on waivers because I would just go in there, first come, first serve, and pick up like the three or the four best players. You don't, you don't get bumped back to the, you know, to the line or end of the line or whatever. It's literally, if you've got a, you know, a, a desire to get the get as many people as you can in a, in a quick mouse, then you, then you can dominate. 
and I think they're going to change the rules this year. But for the most part, I do like blind bidding. It's fair for everybody, and um, there's no whining after that. You can't complain to a commissioner, or right. at least most cases, of being screwed or something like that. Blind bidding is, is uh, has no... You know, blind bidding is fair, and uh, no allegiance is to any other owner, and that's how it should be. One of the biggest debates I have with someone in my league is whether or not we should have the league be based on a pay site. Uh, Fanball is gone now, but I really like my fantasyfootballleague.com, I think it is. Or if we should just have it on a free site like ESPN.com or Yahoo. I don't know if I'm putting you in a spot by asking you this question, but is there a, a site that you like the most as far as having your league being on it? Well, okay, Let, let's get the disclaimer out. Okay, National Football Post has, uh, uh, you know, ties with Yahoo.com. Okay. okay. So I, I like Yahoo. I play in a few leagues that are Yahoo. Um, I, sometimes I get frustrated by the pickups because it was, there's sometimes, like in on a Yahoo league, if you pick somebody up, they don't necessarily disappear from the list. They just, like, their name just goes like a... Like a yeah, it's it's less bold or something like that. So sometimes you, if you're just looking at the list real quick, you'll think that that player is still available, and you'll you'll spend 38 seconds of your life, you know, trying to set up the waiver claim and then realize that he's already gone. Outside of that, Yahoo is great. ESPN.com is great. ESPN.com is the king of auctions. Uh, I know Rotowire is bringing in auctions next year, but for the most part, ESPN has enjoyed a three or four year run of just dominating auction drafts. You can't have an auction draft on a computer, unless you're going to ESPN. And so I've always appreciated them for that. Uh, Rotowire, um, Rotoworld, they do a good job. I like my fantasy league. Uh, the waivers are a little tricky, but I do enjoy the live scoring aspect of that. Uh, the bottom line is, no no system is perfect. Uh, I can find a few flaws, and they're, they're tiny little things, nothing big, for every league. And I can find, and I can trump up any system as well. CBS, you, you have to pay for CBS. And yeah, yet I play in the CBS, too. at least one or two CBS leagues every single year, knowing full well that I could get this same product for free at ESPN. CBS does a great job. And if, if you ever read my column, and I know you do, and I appreciate that very much, I, I try to support everybody in the industry because everyone does it differently, but we're all in it for the same goal. We're all trying to give people the best product, and I encourage you to read every person that you can. I try every system that you can. It, it's all about experimentation, and it's all about finding... The, the system, the, the website that, that fits you best, FleaFlicker.com, is excellent for PPRs, by the way. Hmm. So. My, my all-time favorite, I can't believe it's gone, is StatsWorld.com. I, I would, I, if it was a few years ago, I would swear by StatsWorld I wouldn't be in a league without StatsWorld, but they ended up selling to someone, I can't remember who, and it, it broke my heart. Listen, I could do this literally all day long. It was super fun. It's Jay Clemens, National Football Post. Again, he's on Twitter, at ATL underscore Jay Clemens, C-L-E-M-O-N-S. Anything else you want to plug? Anything you want to let our well, listeners no, know is just, coming up? Um, you will, my column is up today. You can check me out on Twitter, and it'll be there. You can go to National Football Post. Uh, I think next year in our redesign, we're going to have like the pictures of people, so it'll be easier to find. But the, the site is easy to navigate, and, uh, you know, I, we get a lot of good feedback. Our numbers have never been higher. Now, let's, I, I don't credit that completely to me. It, it helps that the lockout has ended and just created this mad rush of everyone suddenly being interested in both the real world and fantasy aspect of it all. But, but we're killing it, and we're doing a great job, and I'm just happy to be there. And uh, hopefully, you know, you can write to me. 
and I'll respond to you rather quickly. And I think you, you know, I've done that for you as well. I'm awake pretty much 24 <laughs> seven, and uh, and uh, I like responding to people. I like getting negative feedback. You can't have everyone liking what you do, and I certainly appreciate anyone that takes the time to write to me, good or bad. And uh, I just appreciate you having me on your show. Yeah, this was awesome. I hope I know you're going to be really, really busy in the next couple of weeks, but hopefully, maybe we can do it one more time before. Uh, everyone's done drafting, or maybe even we'll do it during the season or something. But it was a great, great time. I really appreciate it. Hopefully, we can do it again soon. No, anytime. It's my pleasure, and uh, you know, and I will talk to you soon. Then. Thanks, buddy. Got to thank Jay Clemens for that. That was awesome. Can't wait to do it again. We'll definitely have Jay on again sometime during the month of August once drafts get going. I think we're we're probably a little bit ahead right now of drafts. When do you think drafts are going to really, really start? Fantasy drafts. Probably in the next week, week or, or two. two. Yeah. 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 I think this is, like we've said before, this is the best year to do the drafts as late as possible. But uh, thanks to Jay Clemens. We'll definitely definitely do that again soon. Real quick book club update. Again, we've been kind of looking at some football writing in the shorter form. And I know I tweeted this a couple days ago, but in case you didn't notice, I spent about a, a really nice relaxing hour at Barnes & Noble the other day just kind of walking around, looking for some book club ideas, looking for some books that might have some cool football writing in them. And I picked up a really cool book called Blood's Blood. Sweat and Chalk, The Ultimate Football Playbook, How the Great Coaches Built Today's Game by Tim Layden. And what's really cool about the book is it it doesn't read as one long narrative. It, it's basically each chapter is dedicated to a different kind of football. And it leads all the way up to the way it starts the way football was played during the days of the wishbone and leads all the way up to these more wide-open style of offenses that we have today. And it, it gives credit. Like, for example, there is a chapter about the West Coast offense, which is obviously credited to Bill Walsh. So you can turn to page 90 if you're interested the most in Bill Walsh, and you can read that chapter. Or you can read about uh, Coach Lombardi's power sweep. Or you can read about... Um, some other awesome chapters in here. You can learn about the cover two, where the cover two evolved. You can talk about the Buddy Ryan and his 46 defense. Uh, the no huddle offense is uh, really cool to read about. And it just it's a really cool book. I picked it up, only 15 bucks at Barnes & Noble. So that's what I spent my time reading this week. And it's an author, Tim Layden, who... I'm kind of sucking up to a little bit, too, because I'm trying to get them on the show. <laughs> so that's the book club update this week. Definitely recommend Bud, Blood, Sweat, and Chuck, The Ultimate Football Playbook, How the Great Coaches Built Today's Game, a little bit of X's and O's football type of reading, maybe learn a little bit more about things like the cover two and the sweep and the 46 defense and what those things could mean so you can impress your buddies when you're sitting around watching football. And speaking of football, we'll be right back with Matt Bowen, former football player for the Buffalo Bills, Washington Redskins, St. Louis Rams, and Philadelphia Eagles.
Our next guest is from Glen Ellen, Illinois. He played his college football at Iowa, where he was a second-team All-American. After college, he spent seven seasons in the National Football League, playing for the St. Louis Rams, Green Bay Packers, Washington Redskins, and the Buffalo Bills. After his career, he went on to earn his master's degree from DePaul University and is now a member of the Pro Football Writers Association. He has written for many publications, including the Chicago Sun-Times, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and the Washington Post. Today, he regularly updates the Players' Page blog on the National Football Post. A warm sportscasters, welcome to former Buffalo Bill, Matt Bowen. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing great. What's going on? Not much. How are you doing today? It's, a, it's pretty exciting to have you on today for a couple of reasons. One is we're really excited to, to have football back. You know, we started this podcast the day after the national championship game for college football last year. So by episode four, the Super Bowl had come and gone, and we've been kind of waiting and waiting and waiting to get back to, to this point of the year. But another reason we're excited is we're actually based in Buffalo, and uh, it's pretty cool to have a former former Buffalo Bill on, on with us. And I guess I just kind of want to start there and just kind of throw it out to you. Is there anything you remember about Buffalo or your time here that sticks out, some kind of anecdote or story from your time uh, with the Bills, I know it was short, but something that kind of sticks out you could share with our listeners here in Buffalo? Well, I think the main thing is the fan base, great fan base. I, after games, I just go out in the parking lot and drink beers with people. You know, I wasn't a big name of the team. I was at the end of my career, but I was like, hey, man, it's just a good time up here in Orchard Park. I'm going to go enjoy it after ball games. That's how it was when I played in Green Bay, too. You have that, you know, that community feel out in the parking lot. You can go grab a hot dog, a burger, some ribs, you know, five or six beers in the parking lot after a game. It was great. It's a great organization, too. Uh, you know, I know there's been a coaching change. Obviously, I played for Coach Teron and a completely different staff. But, you know, if, if they continue to focus on the draft, pick and choose wisely in free agency, I think they could build a winner there. I think Chan Gale is the right coach for that team right now. Yeah, they're definitely making a transformation. They didn't do much in free agency, definitely, like you said, trying to build uh, up from the draft. I noticed yesterday on your Twitter, you uh, you seem to be over with the Bears. And we haven't talked much about the Bears going into this season, but they are an interesting team. Playing in the NFC Championship game last year, the whole controversy surrounding Jay Cutler and his injury. Uh, how do the Bears look as far as the eye test goes and what do you think about some of the additions they made off over the offseason and how they'll fit in with the team? Well, you know, I only saw one practice, but I think I know enough football uh, to judge skill of players. Uh, and that's really what I look at when I go to pro camp is I watch the individual drill. I watch the one-on-ones. Um, you know, seven and seven, the competitive drill. that you're going to see, hey, one, how do they run? Uh, how is their footwork or technique, and how do they respond to the competition? And I wrote, uh, you know, today at the National Football Post, and I was really impressed with the wide receivers. You know, it's a hot-button topic. I live here in Chicago, and I'll do some work for the Chicago Tribune during the season. And to be honest, if you talk about the Bears right now, it's the offensive line and the wide receivers. Those are the big areas of concern for the fan base, for analysts around the league. I'll tell you what, that top four, you look at Devin Hester, Roy Williams, Johnny Knox, and Earl Bennett, I mean, these guys can run. They can run routes. Uh, they're good coming out of their breaks. Uh, you know, Devin Hester looks like a much improved football player, much more polished in the stem of his route, getting up the field, exploding out of his cuts. But tell you what, Roy Williams stood out to me because I'm, I'm thinking, okay, this is a guy that struggled at Dallas. 
had some success with Mike Martz in the past, but that was a long time ago. He's a bigger receiver. You know, Mike likes those guys that can win at the line of scrimmage, get into the route, and make plays. And, you know, I'm thinking, I don't know about this guy. But I'll tell you what, he surprised me this year. If you didn't need Ben for a big man, he's uh, pretty smooth with his footwork, kept his feet under his shoulders the entire time, and catch the ball. I mean, he could be a prime target for Jay Cutler this season. So do you see Devin Hester and Roy Williams kind of playing the outsides and Johnny Knox playing in the slot and then Earl Bennett kind of mixing in on third downs and things like that? Yeah, but I think, you know, Mike's creative enough as a play car. He'll move around. Now, Roy is a guy who's got to be on the outside. Uh, he doesn't have the lateral speed to play inside the numbers, but the Hess, Johnny Knox, and Bennett can all play inside. So I think you'll see Mike move him around. And one thing about a Mike Martz offense, you know, Mike was my head coach as a rookie, and they would do what I call a lot of window dressing. What that means is they move guys around before the ball snap like you wouldn't believe. They shift, they motion, they line in bunches. They do everything to force the defense to adjust, basically trying to dictate the flow of the game by what they do with their pre-snap alignments. So you'll see guys lined up all over. The bottom line is you still got to protect the quarterback. So that offensive line has to step up and play. Because Jay Cutler, for as much criticism as he got last year, got to help quarterback now. Just got to give him some time to throw the football. Yeah, and you mentioned off the top that the offensive line could be an issue. I know uh, the center is now with the Saints. How did the offensive line look to you, and uh, what kind of adjustments can they make between now and the, and the start of the season? Or do you think that they're kind of this is the this is the group that they're going with, and they're just trying to gel them as the preseason goes on? I still think it's a work in progress. I mean, it's early in camp. They haven't even played the game. Obviously, they play Buffalo Saturday night. But, hey, Gabe Creamy looks good. Uh, you know, the rookie from Wisconsin, that was a great draft pick by Chicago. You know, he's a mauler in the run game now. I watched him down in Mobile at the Senior Bowl. He's impressive. His feet have to get a little better in pass protection, but they're going to play him on the right side. It's a good spot for him as a rookie. The left tackle with DeMarcus Weather and the Bears really like him. Their pro scouts love him. Uh, you know, they got him in a late-round pick last year, started out at Texas and had a transfer during college. But he's bulked up a little Looks looks a lot stronger. And they're really excited about him. Uh, the key is they lost all the recruits. They're not going to have that leadership. They're going to move Roberto Garza over from guard to center, what it looks like now. So I see it's a work in progress. You know, we'll see how they do Saturday night throughout the remaining three preseason games. And when they open the season uh, – they don't have an easy schedule. I don't know the order off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure it's Atlanta, Green Bay, and New Orleans. Okay, that's that's a tough road to line, to line yeah. up against each every Sunday and open up the first two weeks of the season. Yeah, absolutely. You got the last two Super Bowl champions and the previous NFC South champion in Atlanta, so that's definitely uh, definitely not an easy easy start there. So another thing I wanted to talk to you about before we get too far into into talking about things this season is you wrote a little bit about Marshall Falk and I know you were with St. Louis in the beginning of your career and you were with you know Marshall was there and we had him in, in, in introduced into the Hall of Fame on Saturday and it was a pretty incredible Hall of Fame ceremony I thought with between Marshall and Shannon and Dion just really a, an emotional and incredible night and you wrote a little bit about Mar- Marshall being the most a uh, complete p- football player you've ever seen. What what was it about Marshall Falk being someone who was able to practice with him and watch him from the sideline? What was it that made him so special? Well, I think you, you said the right word. is complete. He's a guy who practiced hard, prepared hard, 
was one of the smartest football players I've ever been around. And when you talk about what he could do at the running back position, he could block, pick up blitzes, catch the ball in the backfield, run to the edge of the defense, get up the middle of the defense. He could do whatever he wanted to. And he was that good. When I look at great players, I not play with a lot of great players. Just on that team alone, you talk about Kurt Warner, Orlando Pace, Isaac Bruce. Torrey Holt. You know, I've, yeah, Torrey Holt played with Brett Favre from Green Bay. You know, played with LeVar Arrington, Sean Taylor, and Washington. I mean, just great football players. But when I look at the total package, that's Marshall. I learned a lot from him as a rookie. Uh, just watching him get ready for Sundays, the way he took care of his body, um, the way he was watched film, and the way he practiced to prepare himself to play, it was second to none. You mentioned uh, in your article about a story about one of your first days and uh, at minicamp and uh, kind of a run-in you had with Falk. Did you want to kind of repeat that story a little bit for those who didn't get to read it? Yeah, I mean, I was a six-round pick. I was a nobody. So, I mean, I, I showed up to minicamp, got my gear, and they showed my lock was right next to Marshall's. And I was like, oh, man, you know, next to Marshall Falk. And plus, I mean, St. Louis was coming off Super Bowl went through. They all had rings. And so it was a big-time football team. And it took me about a month to say something. I was just so nervous. I was starstruck. Yeah, I was starstruck. I didn't want to be, you know, how I think rookies are today. A little edge to a little cockiness, a little ego. I was not going to be that guy. I'll tell you that. So I just kept my mouth shut. And about a month later, Marshall's like, you know, man, hey, you're allowed to talk in the locker room. It's okay. <laughs> I waited until he said something because I didn't want to step on his toes. This is his football team. I was just trying to make the team. And that's how I viewed basically, you know, many camp OTAs and, tra- and training camp as a rookie. Hey, this isn't my football team. I'm just trying to latch on and be a part of this. So and when, the vets, when the veterans accept me, then I'll open up a little bit. And that had to make you feel good, too, to, to know that you had that acceptance from Marshall in the room. Yeah, I mean, it's great. I mean, that, team, that team was something else. And if we could play any defense, I'd be sitting here wearing a Super Bowl ring right now. I'll tell you, that's the best offense I've ever been around. So that team that you played on, that was the team that lost to the Saints in the first round of the playoffs, correct? Yeah, that was. We yeah. started off 6-0, and and we were beating teams like you wouldn't believe. I think we scored 57 points against the Chargers. Could have been 70. And we just hit a losing streak. Uh, Kirk had an injury. Uh, and we never really got back. We just didn't. And our defense, we, uh, well, that's why Lovey Smith had brought in this next season, because we couldn't get it done on defense. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that was a crazy playoff game where you guys were fell way behind, but then almost came back and yeah. almost had a chance to get the ball back. I think it was Azakir uh, uh, Hakim who ended up dropping it, and Brian Milne, I think, from Penn State recovered yeah. that fumble. Yeah, Yeah, but we put that offense in position, trust me. <laughs> we did not make any plays defensively. That's the type of offense we had, and that game's on NFL Network all the time because if they, when they were on, they could score touchdowns. You know, 80-yard drives and two plays if they wanted to. That's incredible. So was that the best unit that you've ever played with, like that offense? Or, you know, then you got to play, like you said, with Green Bay for breath five. And then when you were with Washington, there was Arrington and, and Taylor. Was that still the best unit that you've ever been a part of, that Rams offense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah seeing that offense, is, there's no comparison. Uh, you know, as good as the Saints are offensively, as good as Green Bay is offensively, no, I, I'm telling you now, that offense was special, and there was no one that could stop him. 
So looking forward to this season now a little bit as we've got going here a little bit in training camp. We got some games this weekend to look forward to. I ask this a lot, but it's interesting to see what people say from interview to interview. What are some storylines that you're most excited to see play out here in the preseason? What is it that you're looking to see happen? Or, or what, you know, is there a player that you're looking to see respond on a new team? Is there a team that you're looking to see how they've kind of progressed over the offseason? Are you excited to see some draft picks? What, what are you looking for here as we get going with training camp and, and these preseason games? Well, the first thing is the next players. I want to see the tackling, and I want to see how many penalties are. And the reason I say that is because there's been no offseason. And this training camp is kind of, you know, club med style. It's a lot different than when I played. You have off days, only one pad of practice a day. It's a lot different. So I want to see, one, how the players react. And that's what you look at, okay? If there's missed tackles, there's a lot of penalties, and these guys are not, aren't, you know, prime shape yet. The technique's sloppy. That's why they're grabbing people. That's why they're ducking their heads in the tackles. I think the Bears' offensive line, like we already talked about, you got to pay attention to that group. The rookies, especially the rookie quarterbacks. Again, go back to the offseason. You know, Cameron Newton. I think Cameron Newton's going to be a real special player now in the NFL. I really do. But is he ready right now? I hardly doubt it. Same with Jake Locker, Christian Ponder. Andy Dalton might be forced into that role because they don't have really another option in Cincinnati. But how do the rookies play? You know, watch special teams. See where the kicking game is at. And watch defensively. Because I think defenses are going to be ahead of offenses this season, at least till October. Because defensive football is more read and react. It's not as prescribed, as outlined as offensive football. So what that means is, hey, you line up and cover three, you shoot the balls, you go get it. Offensively, it's a lot more complicated. You know, another rookie I want to see is, I want to see Ryan Mallett play. Right? Mm-hmm. This is a guy that was talked about every day throughout the offseason. A lot of rumors about off-field stuff, a lot of rumors about his attitude, his dedication, et cetera, et cetera. I want to see how he plays in New England. So what he does during the preseason when he gets a chance to throw the football around. So I know he can throw it 90 yards if he wants to, but how does it work in a pro offense? And I think the two main storylines are the Jets and the Patriots. We're going to talk about them all season. Both of them made big additions. Let's see how Ocho works with Tom Brady. You mentioned the you mentioned two quarterbacks that are pretty interesting with very different situations. You mentioned Ryan Mallett, who's going to have a chance to sit behind Tom Brady, kind of learn from one of the best. He's not, obviously not going to play right away. And then you mentioned Andrew Dalton, who's in a situation in Cincinnati where he has to rush out, play right away. There's nothing else there. Do you think that the one situation is better than the other, or do you think it's more of a case-by-case basis? Or... You know, how do you how do you think, as a young quarterback, what, what do you think is a better situation? Well, I think it's case by case basis. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm the I'm the type of guy that if I'm a GM, I'm a coach, and I draft guy in the first round, he's playing. And I don't care if he's a quarterback, a defensive back. I'm paying him money. I want him on the field. Um, you know, with Dalton, they got a whole new offensive system. They're a good running back in Cedric Benson. You know, they got to tailor the game plan to him a little bit. They don't want to have a rookie. I'll tell you what. You don't have, do not want to have a rookie in third and eight plus. Third and four, you have the entire playbook. Third and eight, about four routes you can run. The defense knows what they are. They're going to sit back and cover two, they're going to pressure. I know exactly what's coming. That, that can really hurt a rookie quarterback. Now go back to what the Jets have done developing Mark Sanchez. They've done it with defense, the running game, 
and special teams because that puts them in a situation to win. Can Cincinnati do that? I don't know. That's what it has to do. But Cam Newton, I mean, it, it, it's hard to really describe how you would approach Cam Newton without an offseason because, like I said, he's a unique athlete. But is he ready? Is he? Is he? Does he have the technique down to be a pro quarterback yet? Probably not. It doesn't mean he's not going to be great. It's just, hey, he hasn't had a chance to coach this guy. You know, one yeah. practice a day. I didn't get all that work done before, you know, week one of the regular season. I do think he'll play this season. I do think you'll see him on the field as number one sooner or later, but just not right away. What did you think when you seen the new rules as far as practicing and stuff? I mean, it seems like it's a victory for the players, but do you think it's going to hurt like maybe rookies who need to develop and they have this short window now, this four years before they're going to be entering into free agency based on the options. Do you think that they're going to, the, that some of the younger players are going to dislike not having a little bit more practice time to develop because things are a little bit more rushed in terms of trying to get paid later with that second deal? Or do you think just that this is going to be just such a great thing for the players' bodies and for, you know, for preserving the amount of plays you have in you as a football player. What, what was your reaction as a former player when you seen these new practice rules? Um, I was a little jealous, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. When, I was, when Coach Gibbs came back to Washington, it was pretty violent now. It was hitting every day, twice a day. Now, I do think it's going to help head injuries because the more head, you know, helmet to helmet hits you take, you know, repeatedly twice a day in practice. That wears on you. That's when the compressions come in the regular season, those high speed collisions. Maybe that will help. But, uh, you know, I, I'm taking a step back looking at it from a coaching perspective. I do not like it. I don't, uh, I'd, like you said, I don't think there's enough time. I don't think there's enough. That's how you get in shape with football. You can run. Maybe you can go out in the park right now and we can both run gases until we puke. Anyone can do that. But, until you're in football pads, wearing a helmet, hitting, changing directions, Recovering during that 40-second time clock, that's how you get in shape to play football. That's why I do think, if I'm a coach, if you have four preseason games, you better get your starters playing a lot more than, than normal because you got to preseason. Now, have you, I don't know if this is a coincidence, but it's been really strange with the 10 Achilles tendon injuries so far yeah. already in camps. Do you, is that because of the way the offseason has been, or is that just some kind of strange coincidence? Oh, I think it's the offseason. That's yeah. an explosive injury. That's a case of guys not being in football-specific drills. That's all it is. You don't have OTAs, you don't have minicamp, you don't build up the strength in your leg, the strength in your ligaments. Your body's not accustomed to stopping and starting so quickly. That's why we're seeing them. I mean, it's just, I don't blame the guys. You cannot recreate football. That's the thing. You can't. You can't. You play basketball, hey, you can go to the gym and play for hours. Get good conditioning in. You cannot play football down at the park. That's all your buddies got full gear to look around in their closet, you know? So, hey, it's a specific sport, and the injuries are specific to the game. That's all we're seeing these Achilles injuries. That's, I mean, obviously, that's just my personal opinion. I'm an English major, I'm not a doctor. (laughs) I think I've played long enough that I know when you see those type of injuries, and you're seeing hamstring injuries too. You see hamstring injuries to the skill position, like Aaron Foster done, and Houston, that's just a case of an explosive movement. Muscles aren't ready to react. What do you think is going on with 
with Crabtree. He's someone who I, and you wrote a little bit about Braylon being in San Francisco and Michael Crabtree is out there. I, I just, he's a player that I expected to just be so much better. And I don't know how much, how much time you've had to watch him or, or study him, right. but is there anything, is it, are you like me? Are you kind of surprised that he hasn't worked out? Is it that initial holdout that was really, really long? Do you think that's just put him so far behind? Well, that doesn't help. I'll tell you that. Right. <laughs> you missed time as a rookie. I wrote about Prince of Mukamura the other day. And the Giants cannot counter Prince of Mukamura this year. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. That's, this is the NFL. If you're not accountable, you're not there, you're a ghost. And they're not going to wait around for him to get healthy. It's going to take a while for him to get back on the field and start running, doing football-specific movements again. You can't count on him right now. And going back to Crabtree's rookie season, hey, you start late, you're always playing catch-up. You're always playing catch. The more time you miss, you're playing catch. Again, this year, new coaching staff, he's not on the field. That's not as bad football. Um, I feel bad for the guy. I really do because no one wants to have injuries. Sometimes they're unpreventable. There's nothing you can do. You break a bone, you blow out a knee, I blow out a knee playing in Washington. Sometimes it's just meant to be. It happens. But that's part of the job is being accountable. Greg Williams, the defense coordinator in Washington, always said it. If you're not accountable... You're not here in meetings every day, not in the practice field. Then I can't count on you on Sundays. Why would I put you at the top of the depth chart? Depth chart if you're not going to be around. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned earlier that you thought uh, starters might play a little bit longer do you, in the preseason games. Do you think that starts as early as this week? Do you think we'll see the starters in the games a little bit longer, maybe a whole quarter or two quarters instead of a series or two, like the norm is in that very first preseason game? I wouldn't play them all half. I'd play them a whole quarter. Yeah. Uh, they're not ready to play. No one's ready to play a full half yet. Trust me, no one's ready. You watch this weekend. You see a 10 play drives of you guys throwing up in the sidelines. That's just your heart rate explodes when you get in a competitive setting and you have enough practice time. You don't have your legs under it yet. There'll be a lot of tired legs out there. But I think you got to play them. And everyone's going to say, well, you know, you risk injury. Yeah. But you know what? These guys are paid to play football and you're paid to win games. And if your starters aren't ready in September, how are you going to win games? You got to play them. You know, you, you got to play them. you got to get them in condition. you got to run your playbook. The other thing is game situations. You cannot recreate goal line situations in practice. These coaches don't want guys taking each other to the ground all the time. All right? They just don't want that. You can't recreate third and eight all the time. Well, the quarterback can get hit. That's the other thing. you got to take the red jersey off the quarterback this weekend. Right. And you know what? That makes offensive linemen block just a little bit harder. The sportscasters are here with Matt Bowen from the National Football Post. You can find him on Twitter. He is at MattBowen41. Do you like Twitter, Matt? Is that something you enjoy? Do you enjoy the interaction with the, with the readers, or do you think it's just one of those new kind of necessary evils of the 21st century? I think it's both. I think it's you know, killing journalism a little bit. You know, I was a journalism undergrad. You know, I'm still, I still love the newspapers, and uh, it hurts journalism a little bit because there's so many people that – rush to report stuff, and a lot of times it's wrong. Um, there's not as much fact-checking. There's not as much people getting two or three sources on a story like they used to do in the news, but more in papers. So that hurts it a little bit. But I'm, if you're not on it and you're in this business, you're behind. you got to keep up with the news. And hey, I'll be honest, that's where I get all my news. I follow mm-hmm. the writers I like, and when I want to read something, I go to Twitter and find it there. Yeah, the sportscasters are here with Matt Bowen. Again, you can find him. He's on Twitter. He's at MattBowen41. Uh, says he does enjoy the medium. So a couple more questions here before we wrap it up. Uh, w- 
going into this season, what teams do you think uh, have the best chance in both conferences to be there at the end of the year? Do you got, have you gotten a feel yet for any teams that you think are going to make a strong push towards the playoffs? Is there any teams that you're counting out already? Maybe, uh, maybe even a Buffalo or Miami, a team that you just think is just not, not ready to play this year. Is there any teams on both ends that you think it's just going to be a long season or you think that you know, oh, this team has it, they might be a playoff team or even better? Well, I don't think you can count anyone out yet, and I don't think you can make any predictions yet. I guess you haven't played in the preseason. First of all, who stays healthy? Well, there's, who has other guns going when the regular season starts? You know, how do the free agents make in, mix in? How the rookies mix in throughout the preseason? What the depth chart's going to be like? Most teams are like. I'm, uh, I'm real high in Atlanta right now. I think they got a very underrated defense that likes the pressure. I like Matt Ryan a lot. I like the receiving core. I like the addition of Julio Jones. Um... I think the Saints are going to be back this year. Obviously, everyone's talking about Philly. Yeah, I played in Washington. we got new players every year. We didn't win a lot of games. It doesn't mean anything, really. See how they gel during camp. You know, Chicago and Green Bay, can't count them out. Detroit, I mean, Detroit doesn't have any rookies playing for them right now. They lost the score for the season. Nick Fairley's on the shelf for all of camp. I'd be going against practice time. I'd be sick if I was coaching Detroit. The thing with Detroit, I mean, you can't bet money on them until you see the quarterback standing up for an entire season. Right. you got to have Stafford in there. If you don't have him in there, you got no chance. I mean, the West is up for grabs in the NFC. Uh, you know, I kind of like St. Louis right now. You know, you Arizona they, might have a bad injury with Adrian Wilson if he can't outplay this season. That's going to be a tough loss for them. Yeah, Adrian Wilson with the biceps. Do you think the Rams did enough to put weapons around Sam Bradford? Do you think Mike Sims-Walker and... Donnie Avery and what's left there. Do you think that's enough to to really have Sam Bradford shine? Well, they they were smart and calculated in their decisions. You know, they did not overspend our number two running back in Cadillac Williams. Mike Sims Walker did not overspend. Picked up another old lineman. I think they're doing the little things to improve their team. They're not saying, okay, let's be the Washington Redskins in 2004 and get 30 guys. Let's do it. Let's do it with uh, good investment. Interest in mind and good talent in mind. I think they're doing the right things defensively. And they got a defensive head coach. And I really like teams that have defensive head coaches. I think they're coached differently. I think their attention to detail is a little better. So I always like the Belichick and the Patriots. I mean, more of the AFC. It's the usual suspects right now, but I do like Kansas City. I really like Kansas City this year. I think they can win the West. All right, it's Matt Bowen, National Football po- Post. You can also find him, you said, the Chicago newspaper during the Tribune. season as well, so Chicago Tribune. And you can find him on Twitter. He's at M- Matt Bowen 41 Anything else you want to plug, Matt? No, that's it for now. <laughs> All right, thank, now. thank you very much for joining us here on the Sportscasters. Hopefully we can do it again sometime soon. All right, thank you. Thank you, Matt. Sportscasters back with one more segment. I want to thank Matt Bowen for joining the show. Also want to thank our previous guests, Jay Clemens and DJ Gallo. We have a great show coming up next week. If everything pans out as it seems to be right now, we are going to have Don's number one all-time favorite guest, the great Dave Damashek, will join us next week. 
Also, from the Dan Patrick Show, Todd Fritz is going to join us to prove that he's a better guest than former Dan Patrick Show guest Andrew Pirloff. So it'll be interesting to see what Fritzy can bring compared to what Pirloff could bring, which was a lot of Twitter followers. Yeah, Our okay. Twitter went way up no thanks kidding. to everything Andrew did, so we have to thank him again for that. And also next week, we should have Don Banks from SportsIllustrated.com, which will be a great spot because he's out and about this week at a bunch of training camps. So we will get some firsthand reports from Don Banks about what's going on out there in the world of the NFL. So that's next week's show, episode 36. Dave Damashek, Todd Fritz, Don Banks. Again, thanks to this week's guests, Jay Clemens, Matt Bowen, and DJ Gallo. Last piece of business for today is pick four. Don, Mariano Rivera hates me. <laughs> I was one, uh, one inning, or 90%, according to a friend of mine who did the math, 90% I was to go 3-1 and one last week. Instead, Mariano Rivera blew the save. The Yankees lost the game in extra innings, and I ended up going 1-3. and three. I won Halliday and the Phillies over the Rockies 8-6. to six. Lost the Indians over the Red Sox 7-3. I had the Red Sox in that one. The Indians won. And I had the Yankees over the Red Sox in the game of the week and that the Yankees would win 2 of 3 at Fenway. And based on that last loss, I lost 2. I ended up going 1-3. and three. My record is 60-61. and 61. Don, you had a much better week. You went 3-1. and one. You had Halliday as well over the Rockies. You had the Red Sox over the Yankees in the game of the week. And your host choice was the Diamondbacks over the Dodgers 4-3. Your only loss was that we would replace <laughs> pick four with something else. Pick four lives, and I would have given it to you I maybe if you would have followed through with your yeah, threat of uh, I, I did actually no, tweeting about it. Yeah, I didn't whine at all about it. Uh, yeah, in true fashion, I should have. It was too lazy. My, uh, the game of the week this week, interestingly enough, is a preseason football game. We're going to go with the Jags versus the Pats Thursday at... 7.30 p.m. And the reason I picked this for the game of the week, just in case, it's the, actually the very first football game. Right. So it's the first one. So game of the week. Yeah, if you're going to watch a football game, preseason game, this will probably be it because, I mean, one, it doesn't involve your team necessarily, but it's the first one. I'm going to go with the Pats for no great reason other than they're better than the Jags. So I figure their backups must be better than the Jags too, and I know the Jags are starting a rookie quarterback, so that, that can't go great. I'm going to actually go with the Jaguars because strange things like that happen in (laughs) preseason. So I'm going to just throw my hat in the air and say, look, we probably could have picked another baseball game for a game of the week, and that might have made more sense. But I just thought, hey, it'll be fun to pick the very first NFL football game of the 2011 season. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of logic behind my pick. I tried to back it up, but whatever. Uh, my host choice game this week is a Friday night game at 7.35 in Atlanta. Uh, it's the Cubs at the Braves. Zambrano starts for the Cubs. Hanson for the Braves. I'm going to take the Braves to win on Friday nights. My host choice is the New Orleans Saints over the San Francisco 49ers. <laughs> Friday, August 12th at 8 o'clock in the brand-new Superdome, the very first game to be played in the bre- on the brand-new field that was just installed this week. And just for the fun of it, and because my team's playing again for the first time since Marshawn Lynch stepped on everyone's head, I'm going to pick the Saints. My pitcher this week, to see if we made it uh, three weeks in a row that we picked the same pitcher, is also pitching in a Friday night game at 7 o'clock. 
he is CC Sabathia for the Yankees, who I pointed out last week. Terrible against the uh, Red Sox this year. Now I believe 0-4. 0-4, oh, yep. 16-2 against everyone else, so I'll take CC to bounce back against the Rays. My winning pitcher of the week is the pitcher that pitched for your host choice last week, and that's Ian Kennedy, former Yankee, 14-3 with a 3.2 ERA. He's pitching for the Diamondbacks over the Mets, who are pitching Gee, who's 10-3 with a 3.93 ERA. The game was Friday, August 12th at 9.40. My bold prediction this week, uh, because of the shortened offseason, because of the lockout, I'm going to predict that a top 10 fantasy player, like a consensus or consensus top 10 fantasy player at some position, will suffer a season-ending injury in a preseason game. Now, I'm not hoping for this, obviously, but... This was a worry on a lot of people's minds that uh, you're going to see a lot more hamstring injuries and ACLs and all this fun stuff because players haven't had the months and months to, com- to prepare for it under the supervision of their team's trainers. That's very harsh, Don. I, I know, I know. My bold prediction this week is that Drew Brees will throw a touchdown pass on Friday. Might not sound bold, but as of right now, Sean Payton has not addressed whether or not Drew Brees will even play in the game. Right. So, one, I'm taking a shot in the dark that he will dress. I think he will. But I I also, even if he does, I don't think he's going to play much. So he might only have one shot at this. So my bold prediction is that Drew Brees will throw a touchdown pass on Friday. Now, with the shortened season, you're talking about a guy like Brees not playing much in, in the first game. And they didn't miss any games, I should say. I mean, so they'll still have the four preseason games. Do you think quarterbacks play a little bit more, like maybe in that fourth game or in the I, second game? I think, game? you know, the, th- the third game is usually the it's dress rehearsal. Right. I think maybe the second game players will play more than usual, the third game. But I still think in that fourth game you're not going to see much from starters. Right. Because I don't think anyone's going to re- want to risk it, getting injury. anyone injured in that last preseason game couple reminders here before we let you go. Don't forget, you can find the Sportscasters on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash the Sportscasters. You can also find us on Twitter. We are twitter.com slash sports underscore casters or at sports underscore casters. Don is at Don Like Sports and I am at Diversity23. You can find us on our blog, thesportscasters.blogspot.com. I wrote a blog last week about uh, a three more things blog, just about a, key, uh, a few small things. You check that out. I've written bullet points for a blog. Oh, it nice. doesn't count yet, but... So you're getting there. I've got notes. Uh, you can always email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com, and our website where you can find all this stuff, where, you can blo- where our blog is, where you can email us, where our Twitter, where's our Facebook. You can find all that on a regular website www.sports-casters.com and I also mentioned it a few weeks ago, a website www.thescore.com I'm going to mention it one more time still not going to tell you why but very shortly that could be very significant so in the meantime I want to thank Jay Bowen, or Jay Clemens I want to thank Matt Bowen, I want to thank DJ Gallo, see you here next week with Dave Damashek, Todd Fritz and Don Banks Don Q the Hip We are out.